day, fellow tennis nerds. I hope all is well. This guest needs no further introduction. You have probably seen his YouTube channel. It's the fastest rising star in the tennis. He has, you know, let people follow his journey to his first ATP point, which he has just gotten. So big congrats to Felix Mischker, who's joining me today to talk about his upcoming journey to become a top 1000 player. Hey, Felix. Hey, Jonas. How are you doing? Thank you, first of all, for having me on. Super excited. I've seen a couple of your pods with Karu and then some of the other guys. So yeah, excited to, to have a chat. I mean, witnessing your intro live is uh, really getting me excited to, to, to go create some content. Actually, I'm getting, I'm getting excited and also talk tennis, which is what we're here to do. So yeah, happy to, to get going and get started. Yeah, you're quite a, a good content creator, I must say. You really have nailed the YouTube game. I mean, you're obviously a very good tennis player, but you also, have you like, been following like Mr. Beast or like you have a really good style of editing and you do most of your editing yourself, right? Yeah, so I think when it comes to, to kind of the YouTube creation, I've been growing up like around YouTube my whole life. So watching all of these channels like the Sidemen in the UK, KSI, all of these guys kind of coming up is, has literally been my childhood. So kind of creating videos is really like almost a dream. And, and, you know, that style of kind of editing and stuff is something I've just picked up video on video, just trying to... Uh, try and work more based on the kind of the algorithm and how videos should be made to reach the biggest amount of people, I think, uh, whilst also making them entertaining enough and informative enough for people to still understand kind of what's going on. I think there's a, quite a fine line there. And it's really hard with tennis, I have to say. It's really tough when you're in a, in a sport, as you know, which is so uncontrollable. You're playing tennis in a match. You have only the only thing you have control of is yourself, your own emotions and maybe your serve. But everything else is you never know what's going to happen. So a lot of the time, you know, you're filming, you have one thing in mind and the complete opposite thing happens. Um, so, you know, it's really just being able to adapt and try and work with kind of, you know, what we've got. And um, yeah, we've, there, there's been a lot of videos that I haven't been able to put out just because they haven't pieced out the way that we wanted. So, um, but yeah, it's something I, I definitely, you know, I'm working on consciously to, to kind of improve as a, as a business model as well. Yeah, I think like being adaptable is one of the key things of being a tennis player as well, like YouTuber, but also tennis player. You're always adapting to courts, surfaces, opponents, balls, everything. Now you're in Moratuglu, you told me to train, uh, but you got your point in, in Tunisia under like very hot conditions, right? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, re it was really hot. It was, it, was, it was boiling, 46 degrees on one of the days. So yeah, it was, it was really toasty, but I managed to get through three long qualities matches. Um, was pretty was pretty gassed about that and then obviously just first round main draw got a qualifier you know good opportunity I managed to managed to to seize the chance um, in the final week that I was there as well so um, yes it, it was more of one of those things where I kind of knew if I can just maintain and raise my level of tennis then it was going to be something that's going to going to come and it's going to be one of those milestones I didn't want to make it too big and too how do you say too important because. You know, it's only one step in the road and, you know, there's a lot of careers where people get points, go up to like 300 and then lose all their points. And it's not something that's like an achievement where it's like, you know, you put it on your wall, like a YouTube subscriber plaque, done, completed it. Um, so I think that it's it's just part of the journey and I'm looking forward to kind of working to, to carry on and, and hopefully rise the ranks. Yeah, I'm sure you will. And uh, <clears throat> because uh, you really seem ambitious and you seem to have the right mindset. I think you're very like uh, positive in a way that it's kind of contagious, right? You try to have that kind of contagious positivity always. Were you always like that? Were you always kind of that frame of mind for tennis, for other stuff? I'd like to say so in, in a sense. I've been quite, uh, 
you know, I like to, I'm always that guy in the friend group that's kind of pumping everyone up. Um, you know, that, that's just kind of, you know, the, the way I am kind of thing. And I think that it, it, it's really good sometimes. And sometimes it can be, you know, have to cont contain it a little bit because, um, you know, when you're filming content and you're playing tennis at the same time, it, that can sometimes be a problem. I remember when I played against Carew, uh, a little inside story. When we, when we filmed, he was at Wimbledon. And he came along and we wanted to, you know, play some points. And obviously he's a much better player than I am at the moment. So I, I was a bit nervous. And Marcus Giron came to watch with some of his friends behind the court. I'm like, oh my God, this is so, so much pressure. So we ended up playing like a short set. And the first set, he absolutely destroyed me. 4-0, I was like, this is not good. But the problem was that I was kind of focusing a lot on the content. I was focusing on saying some things, making a joke here or there. Okay, thinking, is the video going to come out right? Is this how I want to do it? What questions am I going to ask him? And then the second set, we kind of just said, look, let's just play tennis. Like, forget anything else. And then it was, I won that set 4-3, and it was a bit more entertaining and better. So, you know, obviously, there's, there's you know, that it's, that's for YouTube. But like, like, like you said, it's like you have to, to be able to separate the two. And I think that positivity is good when it's controlled. Um, but we all have we all have bad days, so um, it's just learning to to kind of get over that when you've got so many different things kind of going on. Like as you know, with the YouTube, it can become quite a lot sometimes. Do you um, sometimes struggle with that? Like you're you're you know you're recording for YouTube as well as playing a serious match in many cases. I mean, sometimes when you're training, I think it must be easier. But when you're playing a match, can you um, can you just block that away that it's actually a camera there behind you? It's funny you say that because it's actually the opposite for me. I actually find it's harder in training than in matches. Because in matches, I, I, I've played so many matches, maybe a thousand matches before having started the series where it wasn't filmed. So it's kind of like I know how to play. I know what the feeling should be. I'm not really thinking about it. All I want to do is get on the court and win. Whereas in training, you're thinking, okay, how, how, like, am I playing good? Do I, am I looking good? Is this going to be good in the edit? How am I... And I'm not really, this isn't really something I'm always thinking about. So don't get me wrong. It's not like it's interfering with my training a lot. But just a few sessions, sometimes when I'm playing bad or when you know, there's a camera on it, there's a little bit more added pressure in training when usually in training, it's like you're, you should be a lot more relaxed. So um, yeah, I find that I can kind of raise to the pressure in the matches, um, you know, with a camera or not, you know, I, I don't really mind it. Do you think your your opponents like how do they react to you now that you're pretty famous? Like, do you do they want to play better because they're on camera? Do they say no, I don't want a camera, or like do they get nervous because people are watching them? Right. It's a good question. I haven't actually asked too many of the guys that I've played. Um, I think most of them obviously say kind of yes, they don't mind. Um, you know, I think that probably they don't want to they don't want to cause any kind of problems, and most of them don't mind being on camera. Um, you know, I think some, sometimes it's it, the only thing that I've seen in other matches, which doesn't really happen to me, is people tanking. Nobody tanks against me. And I think that one of the reasons may be is because they're, like, they're on camera. They know, okay, they're not going to, they've got to be on the best behavior. They've got to be kind of, you know, focusing because, you know, when, when someone else is going through all of the content, I kind of choose what to show. Like if they break their racket and I make a big deal about it to a, hundreds of thousands of people that makes them look terrible um, and just uh, set the record straight I would never do that I, I even when someone throws a racket or gets angry I, I don't put any of that in the video because that's not my place to, to judge them for what they're doing you know I try and just keep it to the tennis and maybe if I have an outburst that I, I'm going to show that if, that if that's part of the video but um, yeah that's the only thing but I think most of the people are, are quite happy to be on video I have happily sent the video of the footage over to them 
so they can have a look at the match because that's quite valuable to, to go through it as well, something I find valuable as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, hopefully some more people start tanking my matches <laughs> against <laughs> against me, you know, maybe maybe I should just kind of only bring the camera to some matches and then they're expecting it and then they're like, ah, oh, what a shame, and, and you know. But yeah, other than that, not not really a problem. Yeah, that would be an interesting experiment to see if like, oh, you, you're not filming today when I want to be on camera? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be really funny yeah. actually to see their reaction, you know, because uh, do you think like having a, your YouTube channel makes it more relaxing for you to be able to focus, you know, or to play tennis because you have your backup as a YouTuber? You're already a good YouTuber, right? You have a good channel. If, if tennis doesn't work out, you can do other things as, as a YouTuber, but with your skills, right? Uh, do you think that helps you in a way or do you think that it, it's, it's too much of a distraction sometimes that you actually have to also edit videos, think about the video and everything? Yeah, I mean, I have quite big plans when it comes to, to being like, a, think of it like as a kind of a business, like growing the business and branching out. You know, I, I see a lot of, you know, YouTubers create other channels and create other businesses along with what they're doing. So I, I'm kind of quite inspired by that kind of root of what people are doing. So, you know, that side of me really enjoys that. So I definitely think it's something that, you know, I can explore um, you know, after maybe playing tennis. So yeah, like you said, it's it's a good backup option. A lot of guys in golf, like Rick Shields, some of those golf channels that are quite big, uh, is that that's what they're doing. They've kind of gone pro and now they create some cool content. So if that you know opportunity or that avenue ever you know decides to to happen, then I, I think it would be a great opportunity. But I think that you know I just love tennis like so much at the moment and just playing it and trying to to rise the ranks and just improve as a player. I'm kind of hooked on that whole like, you know, training and working, which is a great thing. Um, so I'm not trying to think too much about, um, you know, I sometimes, you know, when you're working on something, as you know, when you're working on a video or a project, you know, you get really immersed in it and you can kind of lose track of some of the other things that are important. And I think sometimes, you know, when you're working or you have these big aspirations or, you know, you're talking to agents, you're talking to, you know, editors and stuff like that, then, you know, it can sometimes draw the focus away from maybe what I actually want right now. And I think what I really want right now is to just improve as a tennis player, keep playing tournaments, keep funding my dream and and, and keep working to, to kind of get to a level where I'm really, you know, pushing some plates in big tournaments, which is my goal. So, you know, that, that's kind of how I feel right now. Is, is it, uh, you know, easy to get bogged down into statistics? You've had this really meteoric rise now and, and it must be kind of like you want to go in and check the YouTube analytics like, you know, every 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of, um, it's difficult because, you know, as you know, YouTube analytics go up and down. They're, it's the same for everyone and it's relative to everyone. You know, Mr. Beast or a really big uh, tennis, tennis TV, they're going to get loads of views. They're going to have really high numbers and then, you know, you can compare yourself to them and then you can feel bad about it or what you're doing or you haven't posted in a week because you've been really stressed and you almost kind of have that self-doubt in a way that you're not, you are your numbers, which is just totally not true. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you, you're just going to put out the best content possible and, and try and just keep it going, keep the snowball rolling kind of, kind of analogy. And I think that, you know, if you're really, you're really passionate about what you're doing and you enjoy doing it, then you should just keep doing it kind of no matter, no matter the views, essentially, obviously, if it's, if it's a matter of whether you can afford to do it or not, you know, that that's the hardest part with all, all YouTubers is that pr profitability um, area the same with tennis you know you, you have that profitability line where you can afford to carry on doing you're breaking even making enough of a profit for it to make sense and that's kind of what everyone's dream is to be able to do is to get to that point and then build on that and I think that you know with tennis you know a lot of you know people have been talking financials lately the ATP tour brought out that that scheme 
um, and a lot of different mixed opinions on that. So, you know, I think that with tennis, it's, it's in a difficult spot financially. And I think that a lot of players who are very, very, very talented are not able to make nearly enough money or even stopping and becoming a coach just because it's not financially feasible. And I think with YouTubers, it's kind of the same that, that a lot of talented people just can't, you know, they're doing it as their second job and then they run out of steam, basically. So, you know. That's tough. In your last video, you actually talked really detailed about like the amount, amount of money you put into your into your game, and I think that was pretty, you know, a very good overview for people who are not like aware of how difficult financially it is to be a tennis professional. I mean, yeah. thankfully you have your YouTube channel and, and sponsors and so on, but for for many pros they don't have that, you know. And uh, what do you feel like? Is that a, like a stressful thing about being a tennis player in general? Like the, the financial system seems quite bad i mean it's pretty clear that something is wrong and they're trying small fixes and we'll see if it's not really you know enough in my feeling you know but maybe it's a step in the right direction who knows you know but what was your feeling as a player yeah i mean look the the most neglected level of players is the itf futures right it's always branded in marketing as the lowest level of professional tennis don't get me wrong it is there's nothing lower professionally but the way that it's kind of said, first of all, is just completely wrong. You're getting guys in these tournaments who are 250 in the world. Next week, I'm playing a 25K, and there are, I think, 15 players inside 350 in the world. Seed number one, Jules Marie, also has a YouTube channel, 248 in the world um, for an event where the prize money is pretty atrocious. I mean, you know, it, the amount of uh, prize money the ITF is giving out right now, they haven't changed it for years. They haven't even changed it to in increase for with inflation. They haven't even they haven't even done that. And I think it's just totally you know you're getting players at these futures events like trying to in Tunisia for example staying at an Airbnb miles away just to try and save on costs. Um, you know you're getting people going crazy thirty hour layover flights with really like cheap airlines at the end of the day, which is very uncomfortable. It's if you're doing long haul, um, you know, and a lot of these people that it's so so difficult to to be able to, to make ends meet. And that's just to, that's just to try and break even, you know, in a way. And, and, you know, I'll give you an example. My most successful week prize money wise, um, in ITF was, was that week where I got my first ATP point at $25,000 event, which is the total prize money for the whole event. Um, I made second round of singles and second round of doubles. So quarterfinal of doubles, second round of singles. I made about $700, and after tax was about $560, which is about 500 British pounds, give or take. And my hotel room for the night was about 100 euros a night. So if I'm there for seven days, I'm making 200 euros loss for winning a round in singles and a round in doubles. So it's just not feasible to make to even break even. And, and that's a good week, especially the guys in qualies. You know, you're in, in a whole year, you may be doing that two, three times. So it's, it's really it's really tough um, for those guys at the, at the lower level. And I'm, I'm hoping that the ITF, the ITF can kind of do something. But I just don't think tennis is in the right place right now where it, the big the big powers that be ATP, ITF are actually going to to kind of come together because they will make their money from the grand slams, the big events, and they have their paydays. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like they're not just giving back to the players nearly enough. There was a video I watched the other day, uh, you may have watched it as well, basically saying like Alcaraz from prize money was like the 130th highest paying guy in the NBA, if he would be in the NBA. 130th, and he's the world number one. That's just insane. Like, how can that even, how can we be playing a sport where that's possible? And, and, that, and I think that the top guys 
they're the ones that obviously the ATP are trying to target to pay more money. But the guys at the lower levels are the, guy, are the guys suffering the most. Because those guys, Alcaraz is going to be fine no matter what. Obviously, it's nice to have a few more million. But the guys at the ITF level, they can't even play the sport. And that, that's what's tough. Yeah, and I think that harms the sport because you don't have like reasonable, you know, um, a reasonable life on that level, which, as you said, I think it was a good point you made because people talk sometimes, oh, you're playing challenger, you're playing ITF, and you had futures. And then it sounds like futures is a bad thing, but it, like, to be successful in futures, even to go through qualities, an incredible amount of tennis skill you need to have. Like yeah. you need to be athletically super fit, be able to, you know, play long matches in heat and, you know, whatever conditions, maybe some shit balls or bad court or whatever. So I, I don't think people really sometimes understand the kind of level you need to be just to be able to compete on that level. And that's, that's the, you know, the, the third tier of pro. And then you get up, and but even if you have some success, that maybe some success in some challenges, it's still quite difficult to keep that going. You know, it's like a tough, uh, tough life. I mean, people who do it, they love it. They love tennis. You know, that's that's the only reason, really. Yeah. <laughs> because they're probably easier things to make money from, right? Hundred percent. I mean, it's it's a it's a brutal sport in the in the qualifying of futures. Um, and yeah, every time someone says like uh, the lowest level, I just kind of cringe a little bit. It's like. <laughs> You know, most of the people that are saying it's the lowest level are the guys that if they actually picked up a racket and went there would lose a six love, six love. They can't, you know, they can't kind of really understand that. And I, I, I get why they say it, because it makes sense. But I think that if futures tournaments were, and, and, and that, for that level, IT, ATP Challenger events were paid more money, the players were paid more, they put a bit more care into the live streaming the matches, giving the giving the matches to the players in 4K so that they can post on their socials, maybe having a photographer at each event so the players can, for free, take their pictures and post them on Instagram, promoting the event maybe. The event maybe hires a social media team or a person, especially at events where there's multiple weeks in one place to help promote it. Then you're going to have such a better atmosphere and environment and really give a meaning to professional tennis because it is professional tennis and I think that you know you look at other sports you know even college sport college level like uh, America like college tennis is, is huge I, in the tennis world of course but then you look at other sports and the you know American football is huge in college sports basketball they're selling out 30,000 50,000 seat stadiums at the college level um, so I think there's definitely a, a way to go with tennis and whether that's going to eventually happen remains to be seen but there just has to be a lot a lot better cohesion with the the top people or the the big like atp itf to wta to to be able to make that happen um and to start finding ways of of being a little bit out there a little bit unique to to try and help the players a little bit because you know even with the itf i was talking to a player who's been on the itf circuit for many years now and um you know the itf signed contracts with uh, with companies for betting to allow betting on the itf matches and we're talking tens of many hundreds of millions of dollars that they've signed and the players obviously see nothing of that they're playing and getting betted on and you know getting hate and death threats i've seen so many players like posting on their stories thankfully i haven't you know got too many of those but basically a lot of players getting absolutely harassed basically and they're getting literally peanuts for turning up and you know playing a first round match, like fifty dollars in some cases, which is nothing. Com like when you look at the massive expenses that they have to go through. Yeah, no, and it's also like the, the traveling is quite uh, you know taxing on, on tennis players because like if you play for a football team, you go in a bus and you go together, and it's all paid paid by the paid by the club. Yeah, you have to pay everything yourself and be a small business entrepreneur. 
to be a, a singles tennis player. Like it's it's a quite difficult situation. You have to make sure. Is I mean, most people book their own flights, like unless you're yeah. you know, maybe top hundred, right? So uh, it, it's a tricky situation. And and like you say, I think one of the issues is that there's X amount of organizations for one sport. So you know, ATP, ITF, WTA. And uh, and then the slams have their own organizations, which seems a bit strange. And then you, I think there seems to be an issue where the tournament directors are, or like the tournament organizations are generally taking the biggest chunk of the cake and maybe giving some appearance fee to the top pros. But then the people who are playing on the lower levels, they don't get it really anything. Where, yeah. Which which you need to create like a like a sustainable life also for for kind of challengers, futures, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just building the sport. There's. There's no kind of thought behind actually growing what they have. And I know that they've increased the challenge, the amount of events in the challenges and the prize money. So it's a slow process, but I definitely think there's so much room for improvement, not only when it comes to just ITF and challenges, but just the whole, like the social media world of stuff is just having worked in social media now for two years properly, like knowing and talking to a lot of brands and tournaments it's just so close-minded. I'm just going to call it out. It, it's so close-minded. Uh, we were actually contacted by the ATP. The guy who does player relations at the ATP contacted us uh, with two of the marketing teams and said, look, guys, we want to do some really cool content at Queens and Wimbledon. Um, and so me, me and my dad, who works kind of you know, with me on the, on the YouTube channel and stuff, says, this is great. You know, finally, some appreciation to create some really cool content. You know, in, in some other sports, you're seeing some YouTubers joining kind of the NFL combine or doing some really cool stuff, which is not only promoting the sport, it's promoting, you know, people watching the actual event. Um, and I think that what basically happened is when we went to the tournament director of Queens and pitched some of the ideas, there was no chance. They were like, we need proof that it's going to work. We need, you know, we're not sure, um, you know, whether some of the pros would allow it. And th these aren't crazy ideas. These are like, you know, let's say Queen Centre Court, and one of the ideas was, let me go with my brother. You don't even need to get a pro on the other side. Let's just hit on the centre court for 30 minutes when nobody else is there and film a tiebreak 10s video and just say, okay, I played on centre court at Queen's. And you basically maybe talk a bit about the tournament. No, nothing. They gave back nothing. And nothing obviously came of the one at Wimbledon either. And all of my ideas were too crazy from that sense because they're all looking for the classic, hey, guys, I'm at the tournament this is my vlog of what's happening. This is where the players train. This is what happens here. This is what happens here, which at the end of the day, anyone that goes to the event has access to as well. So there's nothing special really, you know, actually there. And I just, it kind of cringes me out in a way because there's so much opportunity at these events and, and so many cool things that can be done to, you know, even for players to promote their social media profiles. You get guys like inside top hundred. I was talking to Jack Draper the other day, like, um, and he, you know, he's he's not even on a hundred thousand followers, and he's top fifty at like twenty one years old. So it's it's crazy. Like these guys, like Ben Shelton, you, you've seen his name everywhere, but let, he doesn't have loads of followers compared to other sports. So there's, I think, there's so much more that can be done to to really just promote these events and the players a lot better, which will then incur more revenue for the actual players. You know. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. I mean, having worked in marketing for like twenty years, like as you know, marketing director and so on. I have been shocked traveling around to different ATP events uh, and I haven't seen the WTAs. So I can't really comment. I haven't been live to WTA events, but uh, but to Masters and stuff, that's also, you know, uh, WTA. But it, and I, I'm, I'm usually shocked, like how traditional and like you said, close mind. I'm, I'm not like, you know, I've, I've also gone down a road to say, hey, maybe, we, you know, because I know some tournament directors, maybe we can do this, maybe we can do that. 
it's all depending on the person, you know, but, yeah. but generally it's, it's always kind of a no, right? It's like, yeah. they, they have this traditional mindset, like, especially probably in Queens and Wimbledon, which is yeah. very traditional that it's like, yeah, we, our first instinct is to go no. And then you have to do 60 things to convince and probably it's going to be a no anyway, yeah. where you, you know, from a marketing point of view, you need to tap into the engagement, you know, of people watching. So like if, for example, like you have marketable pros, Alcaraz, Shelton, you mentioned a bunch of, and, and yourself, you know, have building a huge following. You need to use that leverage. There's leverage, right? Yeah. Uh, but it seems like they mainly stick around top 10 and try to work with that. And that's a little bit like it gets a pretty stale, you know, it's not the most exciting stuff, right? Yeah. You know, it, it's, a, it's a shame. Yeah, I, I was talking to the ATP guys as well. So, you know, when they have their, their channel and they have those those videos where they're sitting down all the time. So that that's filmed on their media days at the tournaments. Um, and I, I guess, obviously, it's partly the players as well, not wanting to, to do too much extra outside of what they have to do. Um, but I, I really think that, you know, there's so much opportunity there to, to create some really, really cool content, like bringing different YouTubers in, having that, breaking that, that wall between pros and YouTubers as if like, you know, a, a guy who's a number 100 in the world or, or even like a top 50 player in the world, they put like, they put them kind of on a massive pedestal that like, you know, I guess they're playing in the tournament, 100% respect, you're an unbelievable tennis player. But from a social media perspective, why not put you on a video with this guy on his channel, which will get hundreds of thousands of views because you will both pull the views. It's a kind of a, you know, you'll pull for, for your name and that guy will create the video. It'll be really cool. And then you promote the event and you promote yourselves and it takes 30 minutes of your time. And, um, you know, that's kind of been my, my pitch to try and, uh, you know, talk with a lot of players. And we're kind of slowly breaking down the walls. I think the bigger you get, the more, you know, power you have in, in the world, unfortunately. Um, you just have to kind of be given a chance. And I think that hopefully, you know, just proving the concept is always something that's, that's important. So, um, yeah, I think hopefully in the future that that will then begin to change as some of the, like the social media managers, some of, some of the brands are getting younger. You can definitely tell like, um, you know, people commenting on, on YouTube, like as ATP tour commented on my video the other day, like stuff like that is like, you can see that the people running those accounts are getting younger, watching other, you know, YouTubers and, um, you know, even like sky sports, the guy that works the tennis cause they bought the rights for next year. Um, you know, watch it, watching my videos says, Hey, come down, come be on sky sports news. So I've done that twice now and they're, they're looking to cool. do, do more stuff with them next year. So I think that that's really exciting that that's going to happen more. It's just, um, you know, whether that's going to be something that comes sooner rather than later, you know? Yeah. Tennis is a very traditional sport, as we said, and it's, it's, you really feel it, uh, but it can, obviously it will get younger. Things will happen and things will have to happen. Like at some point, uh, I mean, you're at the Moratuglu Academy. He's the guy behind the UTS. What do you think about like changing rules or adding new formats like that, you know, to the mix or what, what's your opinion? I mean, first of all, I think that the UTS is pretty unique. I think that it's, it's a different spin on tennis and I, I'm not hundred percent sure whether I'm a massive fan of it in the sense that I love what they're trying to do and what they're what they're doing in a sense. But I think um, not to throw shade, I think they could do a little bit better in in a way. Um, you know, I think that what they're doing is kind of the same thing as the ATP tour, but just dressing it up in kind of a few fancy like new rules and stuff. It's kind of the same thing. Players playing against each other same kind of format in, in a way like I know the quarters and stuff 
Um, but I, I think it's it's a different way to to view the sport in a way, and that's sometimes interesting to to get the perspective of what the the majority thinks. Because at the end of the day, it's what the people what the people think. I, I don't think that there should be a world where you know the timing system comes into tennis. I think the traditional scoring system is good. Uh, the fact that you never know whether a match is going to be 45 minutes or four hours and 45 minutes is, is intriguing in a way between big players. Um, but yeah, there are definitely a few rules which I think will, will how do I say this? They won't affect 90% of the people that watch tennis in the sense that they won't care whether it's a, their neck cords removed or the, I don't know what it is, the sudden death juice. But it will make, for those 90% of people, it will make tennis 10 times well, not 10 times, but a few more, t- a bit more interesting to watch in a way. But then there's the 10% of tennis purists and tennis people that really, you know, are tr- the traditional, more, more traditional sense or, or, you know, some of the players probably that would prefer it to have it the, the normal way. Um, and that's why it stays that way. You know, like you said, with the tra- tradition of the tournaments, um, you know, what's maybe good for 10% of the people might not be good for the whole sport as a whole. Um, but the people that have the power are usually the ones that are, you know, can control that. So I think it's, it's, it's unique because it puts a different perspective out there, um, which I think is a great thing. Um, I just don't know whether it will kind of catch on as much as people think. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a fun experiment. That's what the way I see it. And I think tennis has a very good product, but it's just being marketed very poorly, which we already talked about. But I, that's my feeling, at least. I think the product is very good. Players are exciting, but you need to communicate them to a bigger audience you need to actually yeah. sell the sport again package it you don't actually need to change that much you know because yeah. it's already pretty good infrastructure you know but when it comes to now like your next journey is top 1000 you're working hard um what do you think are your biggest steps you need to take to uh, to become like a solid top thousand and then maybe f- 500 uh, down the line yeah i mean i definitely think that um you know aims wise first of all i'd love to play play some grand slams to be honest i think that it's definitely something I've been around high level players, um, you know, training with Draper, Liam Brody, those types of guys trained recently with Billy Harris, like the kind of, I've seen kind of where the level needs to be, which I think is, is a kind of a first step in acknowledging where you want to set your aim. Um, but I, I definitely think that first of all, to kind of get to the top thousand, just play more tournaments, play at a high level. Cause uh, since my surgery, I've only really had two months where my surgeon said kind of go for it a hundred percent. And I began to see some great success, you know, playing in Portugal, losing to a guy 500, four and four, then making a decision to go on to clay, which was not a good idea. I'm not going to, I'm not playing any more clay for the rest of the year. Um, and then kind of coming on to hard courts and doing, getting my first point in Monastir. Um, so I think to kind of, to get top thousand, I think it will just be playing more tournaments, develop a bit more uh, patience on the court, being a bit more relaxed uh, and composed, I think is, is a big thing. You know, I've got a lot of power, I've got a lot of speed. I like to kind of go for big shots, just sometimes maybe being a little bit more patient or playing a little bit smarter. You know, some of the qualities players, um, I call, I say qualities players, but guys that are usually you find more in qualities of futures, um, you don't have to play as big. You know, sometimes they actually prefer being moved, give, being given pace. Um, maybe a, a moon ball return to the center of the court is actually quite effective because then they have to do something and they might not have the weapon to be able to do that and then they panic and put it out. So... Yeah, just playing a little bit smarter to get through qualities, give myself the chances in main draw with new balls. Uh, and then obviously progressing more kind of to 500, 300, 200. I think we'll just be developing big weapons. I think once you get to challenges, everyone's everyone's consistent. You have to be you have to be hitting some big shots. Definitely serve and return will be key. 
and then yeah, just keep developing the forehand, build a really consistent backhand, and uh, you know, been working on my slice a lot, really developing like a slice line, slice cross, a bit like a. Uh, you know, when you watch Dan Evans, he really commands the court and uh, changes the pace. It's a great change of pace shot, um, which can really kind of mess with your opponent if they love, you know, one tempo. Um, so, yeah, just creating a bit of variability, keep developing the weapons and, uh, yeah, keep working really hard. I think at the end of the day, that's important. And also working mentally, you know, I think mentally is, is really key because not only a lot of people talk about mental on the court, actually like focusing on overcoming hurdles and challenges, but for me, the most important thing has been developing mentally off the court, developing into, you know, more of a, you know, a character that's going to not only work hard, even if I lose or, or I win, you know, having good habits off the court, but also having the, the kind of maturity to, to understand that it's a long process, the maturity to know that there's going to be ups and downs in, in the journey for everyone. There's going to be highs and lows. And I think that, you know, my surgery has definitely helped with that to see the low points so I can kind of appreciate where I am now. And just understand that it is a journey, it's a process, and you just have to work hard day in, day out. And it might be that you work hard for six months and don't see any success. And then it just takes three weeks and you, you're just playing on a different level and something's just clicked. It's not the training you had the night before, it's the six months of work that you put in. So I think that mental maturity is going to kind of still, I'm still obviously still working on it, but trying to just have in a, in a week as many good sessions as possible and um, yeah not let my emotions control me especially when you know I'm working a lot on on a business side of things off the court which takes a lot of the energy as well so um, you know days are long but you know that's essentially what's gonna gonna kind of get me up up the rankings in my opinion as well I'm working with a good coach yeah the coaching is important as well of course but do you do any kind of like visualization or you know meditation to get into the groove before a match or just generally every day to have like a good foundation of of mental well-being because it's so important on the court i think it's something i had I, i've done in the past i personally feel like it, it gets in my head a little bit i always start to overthink a little bit for me my, my kind of fundamentals as i like to say now are have i done my work for the day in terms of on the business have i done have i edited the videos have i planned my videos do i have anything that's burning have i done that yes okay check mentally it's out of my head have i done my injury prevention have i done my stretching have i warmed up have i done the, the key things that i need to do am i eating well those things i think are the biggest indicator of my mental health because then i can i can accept what happens on the tennis court if everything else i've done to the best of my ability and i've kind of controlled that um i think that's really important for me and i think that um I like to I like to kind of visualize a little bit on the court, kind of before points in the the change of ends, but I don't want it to drift off too much. It will be more kind of thinking about okay, I really want to get up to this serve and I want to hit it here, and then I go and serve. Or it might be in the next game. Okay, this first point, I'm going to just visualize myself stepping up to it, crunching it big middle, and um, you know really looking for the forehand. Those kind of visualizations, I think, really help me. But um, the more I start to think, okay, about the whole rally, and then I have this like insane rally in my head, visualized like this is Novak against Alcaraz, and then you go and you step up to the line, the guy hits an ace against you, you're like, okay, well, you know, what was that for? And um, so I just try and keep it simple. Yeah, I think keeping it simple is smart. You have such a mature mindset. Like, do you get that from your parents instilled, or do you have any other role models that that bring you that kind of uh, the mind? I think it's just having worked. I mean, first of all, my parents, my dad, uh, he's, he's German. So he has he's been working in marketing for like 20 or 25 years now. So he has a very, um, when it comes to business and my tennis, a very pragmatic approach. He's very disciplined when it comes to working. And 
and kind of that that's translated to me in a sense that that kind of working one step at a time working and saying okay you look i know you know he says to me like i know you're young i know you want to go and do it and thing but first of all we need to build these steps we need to understand this is the thing and this is the sensible thing to do and i think that that's kind of spilled over a little bit but i also think just having you know when i started the the journey I took a gap year, so I didn't go to university, and that was quite a big step. So I just had to kind of mentally mature a little bit there and say, look, okay, I put on a piece of paper, how much can I personally, you know, pay for? And this was a, a kind of decision that my parents kind of said to me, look, Felix, this is your decision to do this. We're happy to help you to this level, which I think wasn't a huge amount. It was, you know, one a few thousand pounds for the year. Um, and then I, I kind of said, okay, my journey is going to cost me, you know, in my latest video, it was 50,000 for the, this year and last year. And so it's might maybe cost 25K a year. How can I bridge that gap? And so I said, look, I have to do something. And the biggest option I had at the, at the time was a YouTube channel. So just posting one video a week. And, you know, I, I never really get to tell the stories, but the amount of times it's been last minute, stressed, doing it, um, tears, tears of joy, everything. We've gone through all of the emotions behind the scenes when creating Road 20 to Point and the journey and, and posting it on YouTube. I mean, people really just don't understand. So one of the most asked questions from people is, um, and I'm sure people ask you maybe is, how long does it take to make a video? Because, you know, you see video, my, my first Road 20 to Point video took me 30 hours and I, um, without, without the filming, that was just the editing. Um, and I edited that in three days. So it was a proper grind. Um, and that's kind of, uh, I think makes me appreciate the rest of just, just life in general and just being able to be on the tour and being in nice places. Moritogli is very nice and you know, being at tournaments is very nice. And I think just appreciating that because I've, I've worked really hard to, to be able to get to that point. Um, and I think that that's one of the main misunderstood, misunderstood things about like YouTube and content creation and, and that type of business is, you know, you get some people that get really lucky and do something and make loads of money from doing nothing. You get some people that don't make a lot of money doing loads of effort. And I think that, you know, for, 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 for what we do in, in tennis, it's usually quite tough to create entertaining, informative content. And a lot of work kind of goes in behind the scenes. You know, I've talked to Carew. I talked to a few uh, other channels that have kind of died out. They've they just lost motivation. It's really mentally tough and taxing and um you know i think that's what's kind of built this sort of resilience mentally um which i think is a big strength um in in everyday life um and it helps me on the court a little bit as well do you i mean 30 hours editing that's that's a pain i know i know i know the pain pretty well but you try to hire an editor for a while do you still do it yourself or do you have an editor now or you know how, how tough is this to get, to kind of relinquish control and say hey you know you do take my baby here and make it into something that i would like to see you know it's difficult it's very i'm still doing it all by myself in terms of post-production at the moment um i think it, it it's difficult because obviously i'm paying for the tennis which is expensive and so there's not a massive budget to to get someone i mean from from an initial perspective, it's if you look at the actual costs of what does someone cost, okay, so if you want them, the, the ideal world when I'm traveling so much is to have someone with me, you know, with me to help edit and help maybe help film some of the stuff. Okay, what's that gonna cost? Well, travel expenses, if you're traveling for four weeks in a month, that's maybe 4,000. Then you've gotta pay them a salary, maybe two and a half thousand. So you're already looking at six and a half thousand euros for one month just to have someone to help you there. And so it's just, it's just finding that balance of, how can I get someone to help me, 
but also that I'm not selling an arm and a leg to, to do that because I can kind of make do just about for now. Um, so me and my dad have been talking about it and I think our kind of plan is to, to just work really, really hard for the rest of this year and maybe just sacrifice, um, you know, some friendships, well, not friendships, but like time with friends and, uh, you know, some of the nicer things and then just look back at the year and say, okay, we've maybe earned a little bit extra or we've been able to prove that it works. Okay, let's try and hire someone on, on, on this trial basis. Let's try and see if that helps because I've tried like remote editing and with the style of my videos, I just don't think it works that well because I think that first of all, an editor has to love tennis. And second of all, I really struggle to, to kind of, even if a person has a different style, I feel like I'm all very nitpicky with like little things. Like I could spend 10 hours on a video and then look at it and say, okay, I need to spend another 10 hours because this sound level was wrong. I need to put this here. I need, so I'm very, and I think working with me might is pretty much a nightmare. So I think that's why in person it works best because then there's the most chemistry with that person to be able to, for them to learn as quickly as possible the way that kind of we do things. And that's why guys like Mr. Beast have 30, 40, 50 editors because you know, that's essentially just there's so much attention to detail. And uh, with a tennis journey, it, it, it's, again, never easy. You never know what you're going to get. So you just have to make something from nothing sometimes. You know, we've had days where I have no clue what to film on a Monday. And I need, need a video by Sunday. Okay, let me do a, a serve transformation for one week. I mean, just completely ridiculous stuff. Can I, as more of an experiment, can I improve my serve over one week? Okay, get it. Okay, on Amazon, I've got to buy a sensor. I've got to buy a thing that can can measure the serve speed. Okay, okay, what do I want to do? Okay, I want to do serve speed and I want to do accuracy and I want to do spin. Okay, we're going to measure over a week. I'm going to do four training sessions. I've got to plan when I'm doing them because that's going to be extra to my training. I've got to have someone there to film me. So there's just so much stuff that goes in. And then, okay, I finished the challenge on Saturday. I've got to edit it all on Sunday. Okay, so it's just so much stuff that goes on there behind the scenes which people don't see, which is just such a crazy thing. And that's what I've said, like with the, like trying to work to, to get, like a few videos ahead kind of thing. So there's no stress because, you know, some weeks have just been just hell, <laughs> just, just crazy, yeah. crazy weeks. And uh, it can really, it can really get to you when you miss a week or when you don't post for two weeks and, you know, you, you then don't want to start on a piece of bad content. And there's so many things mentally that go into it, as I'm sure you know, is, is a lot of ups and downs, but yeah, I just try and try and do my, the best that I can and, and try and get it to a point where maybe one day it can, it can be a, uh, you know, a big thing. Yeah, I mean, the way you're you're moving, I'm sure you can, but it's, it's obviously a, a big step to get where you have someone understanding your vision and being able to work together. Because as you say, like, you're filming yourself hitting balls and you know, like, this looked good, I like this point. You know, it's kind of tough to give that to someone else and they have to be a tennis player because otherwise, how will they, you know, take your match content and dial it down to, you know, the highlights you need or the key points. You know, if you have someone who really understands your game and your style, okay, but it's not that easy to find. So I understand the complexity of the, of the challenge, right? Yeah. Um, one question more I have is uh, when you had those really rough, I mean, you had some really bad luck with injuries, right? Yeah. And, and then you have to still shell out content. You're probably feeling like shit. You can't play because playing tennis is also like a little bit of, of therapy for most people. Like, you know, it's like hitting the ball, moving out, sweating out, and you can't do that. And then you also, your videos will suffer a bit because you're in this kind of dark place yeah. as, a, <laughs> so, as a YouTuber and player. Yeah, it was, it was a, a difficult time, which I'm grateful for my family for and friends, to be honest, for helping me just stay disciplined with what I was doing and focus one one day at a time training wise, you know, because 
I was it was easy to get down on myself because from a content perspective there were there was nothing really cool to film and I set the benchmark quite high I have quite high you know aspirations for videos like I I'm not I it, it kind of like if I have to do a day in the life video it will just kind of I don't know it hurts me a little bit in my soul that I'm not doing something really cool um, and as much informative, informative as they are, once you do the 30th day in the life video, it's the same. It's wake up, breakfast, tennis, recover, tennis, gym, eat, go to bed. It's very simple. Um, so I think that, you know, it was just a, a process of just building on my tennis day by day and, and understanding that it takes a bit of time. And it, it got a few points where I thought I was behind where I needed to be. So we went back to the where the surgery was, get reassessed and have a look at it and you know worries and doubts whether it's going to improve you know I go play my first tournaments in Greece in like March which is four months after the surgery play terribly um, but at that point it was you know I, I, I think I can say it now I didn't really say it at the time but it was like I had the three ITF singles points which allows you to be higher than everyone that enters the tournament without a ranking at all um, so it's like a kind of transition point before ATP points I had three from the previous year and then I went on an 11 match losing streak till the end of the year. So I start playing the tournaments probably two months before I should have actually played tournaments only with the only aim of getting one point so that I can just be ahead of the other guys uh, before I lose my points. Because uh, then I, the whole journey would have been like maybe two months where I don't actually get into a tournament, which would have been horrific. Um, so I got pretty lucky there. I managed to get one in the first tournament and one a couple weeks later. But that was also quite tough. Competing before I was ready was was you know not a fun experience. Being at a tournament and not feeling like you're part of the part of the event. You know you're losing in qualifying first round. There's you can't go lower than that. And um, at least at challenges and ATP you can think, okay, listen, my ranking, da, 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 I'm you know already. But you can't go lower than professional like ITF qualifying. And that's mentally really challenging, especially when you're posting it to hundreds of thousands of people. Um, that that's really tough, um, which not a lot of people kind of understand in a way because you know you're basically showing everyone that you're you know, your level all the time, and it, it is funny because the tennis world is a bit like that. But since I've got my first ATP point, I've actually had a lot of people that are higher up in tennis start following me, and uh, I'm not going to name <laughs> names, but I guess I just find that funny that they weren't following me when I was losing first round qualifying in Heraklion, but now they're they're following me, messaging me um, now that I've got my ATP points and that it's all kind of the tennis is, you know, I think there's just that kind of um, mutual respect with amongst tennis players at the high, that, that are like higher up. Um, so you're just kind of breaking down those, those barriers, I think is, is good as well because you just feel a bit more like you're, okay, I'm part of the event in a, little, in a, in a weird way. And that's why doubles helped me quite a lot because I've had some success in doubles. So, you know, feeling like I can go deeper in the event doubles wise made me feel like, a bit of a play, like a, ten, a proper tennis player, getting ATP points, getting prize money, um, rising the rankings. That kind of what helped me through when I was, wasn't playing good singles. Um, you know, that was really motivating for me. And I definitely think that, you know, if, if at some point singles becomes really tough or we get to a sticking point or just decide that, you know, I want to do something different, I definitely think that there's opportunity now in doubles at the challenger level to, to play challengers because you get free accommodation, you get all decent prize money. So there's maybe opportunity at some point down the line to to do a bit of doubles uh, i know my brother loves doubles as well so little maybe tennis brothers doubles doubles series in the future but um but yeah that's that it was it was a tough time but it makes me appreciate kind of what's going on now that that's uh, i can imagine that but that's in you know i i can see also why people reach out because you you kind of like 
now you're legit for for like the high ranking because a lot of tennis players they live in a bubble like i i you know hang around some atp pros high ranking pros when i'm traveling around or here in marbella you know and and it's like a tennis is a small world but it's a little bit of a bubble like and they like they everybody seems to check rankings seems to check is this guy doing what is he changing rackets he's doing this he's new, yeah. new physio new coach and so it's a, it's a small world and everybody knows what, what everybody's doing. Because even on social media, tennis is pretty small in, in you know, yeah. relative terms, yeah. right? It's funny as well to say that, yeah. sorry, because when I was initially at the beginning of my series talking to Bublik, so he was at Queen's practicing, he sees me, he says, like, come over, he messaged me a few times. Um, so he, he kind of comes over and I was saying about, I was injured at the time. So he wanted to practice with me at Queen's, but I was injured. I was like, oh, gutted. And then um, basically kind of saying like, uh, you know, it's tough to gauge the level through the tennis, but you can just tell they're all in that kind of world, like where, you know, the futures and the challenges is like kind of easy. And it's it's weird, like when you talk to someone, because everyone's at their own pace, like everyone does it differently. And, you know, it's 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 a bit eye opening from from that perspective, because, you know, it makes you feel a little bit like worthless when you talk to the guys like Alcaraz who are like, oh, yeah, mate challenger it was just one out of 15 like <laughs> you know but um you know everyone's at their own journey so you just gotta kind of but, but Bublik's a really nice guy I don't want to throw any shade of course but um you know he was like saying oh he was saying positive things it was like um but it kind of made me feel like wow you know so he said for example like uh oh I thought um I think you were gonna go straight like all the way to top 500 by the end of the year but now you're injured and then you know having kind of only seen one of my matches I was like Thanks for the vote of confidence, mate. But um, you know, not 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 gonna go that quickly. <laughs> I think, but back like a year and a half ago, when my level was nowhere near where even where it is now. So, um, yeah, that was funny. Yeah, he seems like a funny guy. He has, has a funny attitude and, and like a good good person in general. But yeah, but I mean, when you're, um, I mean, obviously you're you're always you're doing this in a unique way. I think you're the first guy who've done this con at least like so consistently and gone from like, I set out my goal, I made the goal and I keep on going, right? Uh, and I think like, you know, even I notice like, you have top players watching my videos. I mean, I'm sure mm -hmm. everybody's watching your videos, but they're not, you know, usually with the ATP pros, they don't want to subscribe or be visible, you know? That is such <laughs> so a good, that is such a good way of putting it because I hear, it's, it's weird like, no one kind of says it to my face in a way, but I hear stories from people about players. So like, um, it's just it's just really funny. Like I was talking, I was played doubles with Anthony Popperin, whose brother is Alexi Popperin, and he's kind of saying, yeah, like, yeah, I know, yeah. you know, you he's saying like he said to me like all the guys watch your videos, like every like all the guys, and I'm like, oh really? Like why why is no one telling? Like what you know what I mean? Like come on, like do a video with me, please. Um, you know, like um, players asking like guys um you know even like steph stefano sitsipas like his i'm good friend like friends with his brother and stuff but anthony is telling me like oh yeah steph was asking if you're going to the academy and stuff and like i was like oh just ask me please dm me <laughs> you know but um you know it's it's you know it's like you said it's 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 that level where you know it's um you know they don't have to at the end of the day i watch channels and don't message them either so it's not not like an expected thing it's just it's just funny that sometimes when you meet them in person they're like oh yeah i've watched your videos like i know who you are kind of thing and it's like oh really that's nice you know um you know when you meet the guys and you sure you've had you know you said have the same experience so it's sometimes quite nice when that happens yeah, and, and I, I think for them, it's I, I'm trying to figure it out because like some are really quite open, some are like, oh, you know, uh, I, and I think it's because they they are so private, you know, they feel like yeah. okay, you know, they don't want to, to open Insta messages because they can get haters from 
guys who lost money, like you mentioned before, it's a big problem. Uh, and and maybe like they just, you know, too much DM, too much action, right? So I think they get really reserved and then maybe sometimes their their coach or their team wants to shield them from everything. Yeah. So they get kind of like brainwashed into this, like don't communicate with anyone outside our little team because that you might disrupt, you know, your eco system here that we have. And it's like, it, it's weird because the, I, you go to ATP tournaments and you go to the restaurant and the player restaurant, like, and yeah. I... I'm there just chilling and I know some of the players, I know the tournament director, but then everybody's their own island. So you have like, oh, this Felix team, he doesn't talk to anyone. He yeah. only talks to his team. Yeah. And then, you know, there's this guy's team. And I'm like, why don't you just hang out? You go to the every same tournament all the time. You can at least you know, say, hi, hey man, how are you doing? You know, even yeah. if you're going to play the next round, you know? Yeah. But it seems like they hold the cards really close to the vest and they don't want to say anything. <laughs> it's like that. Strange, strange tennis player. It's, uh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And, uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a shame, really, because a lot of the players will probably be you know good friends. Or, but I guess you know you're there for business. At the end of the day, business has got to be taken care of. You don't want to be distracted by things, and you know each their own. If that works for you or that works for for some of the players, then stick with it. Yeah. Do you have any sleazy agents reaching out to you and want to manage your uh, career now? Now that you're <laughs> you're well on the radar. <laughs> Um, not, not really. I mean, you have your father, I know that, but that, yeah. like, I mean, there's other people coming out, you know. Not, not particularly. I mean, you get like, um, you know, you, you get a lot of like requests for like to people to like, for like videographers and like agents and brands and all of that. As I'm sure you know, is like a lot of all, all the time. So I think it, it's, um, you know, you just got, I, I just try and focus on making videos and playing tennis because as soon as it goes beyond that, it becomes. You know, I can't be an accountant, a tax advisor for myself, a learn, learn all of that. Okay. Then do the videos. Okay. Then film the videos myself. That's not even physically possible. And then, uh, you know, play tennis and that, you know, so there's just, I just try and focus on the, on the essentials at the end of the day. Cause the, you know, I'd rather do two things well than five things average. I'm surprised you haven't yeah, so asked me about my racket yet. No, no, no. I'm tired of rackets. No, no. I, I can ask you about your racket. <laughs> Shut up now. He's done reviews for so many years. He's just given up. Yeah, yeah. It 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 does really like uh, get on your nerves after a while, especially when you're playing. I'm playing some opens and stuff just myself on my level, but it's like having this racket madness in your head or in your bag. It's just it's <laughs> disaster, right? It's like so bad. And now I'm just I just took a racket from one of the bags. I have like a hundred rackets in the wardrobe, um, and I just picked a racket and I was like, okay, I'm gonna play. Uh, my next three tournaments, I'm playing like some ITF seniors yeah, and something like with just this racket, just as a test and see, even just not like being selected for that, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I know you play with the the Dunlop, which is a racket I like, the CX200, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you you always was that like a big change to switch to that, or you always felt you know that was kind of your spec? I mean, I think first of all, I'd say I, I'm kind of the opposite of you, and I obviously don't know how. Like, that's good. It, that's it good. sounds like you play with a lot of different rackets and trying stuff and and switching. I've stayed with the same racket for nearly four years now. Haven't well, there was one model change where they upgraded the the line of rackets, but I've pretty much stayed with the CX200 from Dunlop for yeah two or three years. So before that, I played with the Wilson Ultra. Yeah, it was an eighteen twenty frame. Uh, it was quite I, yeah. quite tough to play with. I played with the uh, strings that were quite tight, like sixty pounds as well. So I <laughs> I wasn't that big physically. So it was it was just a really bad match, and nobody really ever told me to change. So I played with like a a tough string pattern in terms of power, uh, and then like really tight strings. 
And so, um, yeah, it was, it was difficult to kind of develop good shots and good technique and stuff. So when I switched to the CX, it was a bit more open, 16-19. Felt like I'd get a little bit, bit more power uh, and then lower the tension a little bit and then boom, just way more power. And I think that's kind of just helps me a little bit. And then, you know, I've recently I just increased the, the tension a little bit, just get a little bit more control when I've been playing in hotter conditions. And I feel like that's I've got to a, a reasonably good, uh, a good place now, you know. Yeah, and you spec them up a bit. You add some weight to them, I guess. Yeah, so quite when light. you get them from Dunlop, I mean, this is the only thing about the rackets. Um, there's like plus minus like seven grams. And usually the ones from Dunlop aren't amazing at um, coming out of the factory the same. Um, so I just, I mean, they're not bad by any means, but it's like three, two, three grams here. So for the average player, let me just preface, it's for the average player, it won't make a difference. Like You will not notice it. But at kind of my level and higher, you kind of begin to want to have it the same, just for mental sanity as well. Um, of so course, I, yeah. I kind of, um, it was a bit, I just had a racket that I'd added some weight to, like myself with some like lead tape or something. And I really just love the feel of it. So I basically got all of my new rackets from Dunlop and said, can we spec this to the exact same as what this one is? Uh, yeah, and then they were like, okay, yeah, we'll do it. And then I basically have all of these the same um so i don't really know actually what the specs are i think it's like 307 grams unstrung weight um mm. uh, i think it's the swing weight is i don't know what swing weight is but it's, i think yeah 207 uh, three, 307 right three, 307 yeah. yeah is um you know unstrung weight and then i'll kind of have them the same but um i've played more around with the, the strings rather than the, the actual frame um as well you know recently trying out some natural gut on, on the racket, on the crosses. Mm. Um, just I initially, just after my surgery with my arm, just a bit more, a bit softer. Um, but I, I actually quite like it. It gives me a good extra pop on the on the ball um, and a really nice feeling on the racket. And, um, you know, mainly I'm using Dunlop Explosive Bite, which is my, kind of the main string, uh, which I really like. Um, but, yeah, just experimenting with it a little bit. And, um, yeah, for the moment, I quite like it. Yeah, no, it's a good setup, especially like that racket. I like the feeling of, and and if you add gut to the crosses or mains, you know, it, it's it's gonna be very nice. You know, obviously the gut's gonna be costly, but if you get strings for free, then it, it's manageable. You know, it's like because uh, I guess you break strings right quite frequently, so it's not like you yeah you have to string your rackets for every practice and stuff like no, that. You no, know, that's what, but, not what the club players. The gut, the gut, I obviously pay for because Dunlop doesn't manufacture gut, unfortunately. So I just I just buy that, but I haven't really been playing around too much with it. I haven't really decided to make a hundred percent switch to it. So yeah, I just I get the Dunlop explosive bite for uh, from Dunlop. So um, yeah, that helps on the cost as well. And um, yeah, I mean in training I don't really mind. I like to have a fresh, two fresh rackets for matches, like every ball change, ideally. Um, but at, like especially in hot conditions, if it's like damp and wet, I might just keep the same racket because I don't really mind. Um, but yeah, especially with the gut, it kind of wears down quite quickly. But with, with the Dunlop strings, I'm not too, too, too fussed about switching that regularly. I just let it wear down. It lasts quite a while. Yeah. I've seen a lot of pros now trying out strings, especially. So I think that seems to be the situation where people are now like, how can I get more? Can I get, you know, change something? Yeah. Uh, a lot of hybrids, um, sometimes poly-poly hybrids. So you have two polyesters yeah. trying to get some like Kasparud or, you know, uh, a, few, a few other players. Or users. Yeah. Yeah, you sorry. Karu uses poly poly as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, in monastery. 
Yeah, he's using a also pretty high tension, like fifty nine pounds or something. Which we is, go into the high. we go into the stringing the stringing room at this tournament, and I'm I'm stringing at usually I'm playing fifty one fifty four, um, but I think good, I think good, I want to go up a little bit. So let's say fifty three fifty six is what I'd usually have. I was stringing like fifty five fifty seven in Monastir because they string it a little bit looser and it's pretty hot. Karut Karut yeah, goes right. in, hands the racket, and says, "Can I just have sixty four? Or like 62 or something crazy. And I was like, wow, that's going to be so tight. And he was like, okay, there. but I'd rather have a bit more control and just swing through rather than just the ball go everywhere. Um, you know, because he was playing like the next day or something. So he didn't have loads of time to, to acclimatize. So he said, I'd rather get them strung a little bit looser next time. But that was crazy. I was like, my eyes were like, what? That's like nearly, you know, what's the, the highest tension you've ever seen like a player play with, like a, like a tall player, like? Yeah, recent, like before in the old days, like people used to use multifilaments, use a string really high, yeah. uh, you know, like uh, I think even Becker strung or 80 pounds or something, but I was like with the, with the gut or yeah. multifilament. So that's, uh, that's a board still. But from the ATP pros, I would say in Dustin Brown, 70 pounds on a pure drive. Wow. That's gonna be yeah. So it's it's just pre pretty much like now you have a frying pan. Like yeah. you're, you're removing all the all the flex in the racket. Yeah. There's nothing left, right? It's just like brick. I don't know how his arm lived to see that. I mean, he plays very specific tennis, yeah, right? Very flat, goes for everything. Yeah. yeah, short points. But but it's uh, that's a board. And then you have obviously guys like Manarino. You know, that's uses like 25, 23 pounds. You know, yeah. like insane. Like moving around with ten kilos. Trying to play with that, I, I don't, you know, I've tried it, but it's it's not not for everyone. Yeah, I, <laughs> just, I think yeah. one of my video ideas for YouTube, like a YouTube shorts, was to test out the highest and the lowest tension on a racket and actually see how different it is to play. So I can now use I can now use your Dustin Brown reference as the as the higher end. What what, what tension is Manorino in pounds? Like thirty? Uh, I I mean I the one when I measured I I met him in Mal Malta. It was twenty five pounds, but he's gone down, right? So it's like. <laughs> He's, I think he's, the last I've heard was either like 22 or 21 pounds. Wow, 21 pounds. Yeah, so you can almost pull it by hand then. So you just need to hand pull. You don't need to string it. If it's a really cold day, you might go down to 10 pounds. Like, who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, he's, he's, but he's like, he's just, you know, it, it doesn't swing at the ball as much as other pros. You know, he's more like he's touching it around. He has good touch, good feel, good timing. So... Um, yeah, I, I think some player just said like it's one of the most annoying guys to play because he, he you don't understand what's happening on the impact from the other guy, right? Yeah. You're like, hitting the ball over and it's coming back with some weird spin and pace, you yeah. know. So it's it's a smart smart thing to play that different, you know. It's like a pretty smart in a way. Yeah. But if you if you want to try the video, you don't have to go that bad. But you know you know go, go maybe 25 and 65 or something. But it yeah. would be interesting to see. That'll be fun. It's 40 pounds difference, a huge huge in a tennis racket. <laughs> one ball is just gonna be an absolute rocket, and one's just gonna go bottom of the net. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much it. So when it comes to your, your brother, by the way, because you're tennis brothers from the start, and you've, you've been doing YouTube for quite a while, right? I mean, I remember you from, from way before the ATP, um, wrote the ATP series. He, he's not trying to go pro. He's more uh, doing normal life stuff. Lucian. He was. So for two years, he kind of quit tennis and wasn't sure where he was kind of tennis-wise. Um, but, he, you know, since I've been playing more, since my surgery, he's been playing a lot more now as well. So he was with me in Monastir. He won a round in the qualies. So he's playing better and better and better. Um, he has a lot more talent than I have as a tennis player. Um, he's more up and down mentally and emotionally. Um, and I think, but I think with some training, he can really, you know, 
be a, a force, um, maybe thinking of going to college in America, which might give him some time. Um, but I definitely think he will try and, and, and go pro, whether that's maybe only in doubles because he finds that more fun, whether he wants to try it in singles as well because, you know, you've got to remember that a lot of the singles guys, unless you're really kind of believe in yourself that you can get to like a level where financially it makes sense you're just burning cash if if i know yeah. uh realistically if i believe that i would only get to like 900 in the world or a thousand maximum you know if that's if you're at like a higher higher age or you just don't care that much then you just got to accept that you're going to burn money um and you know i i i know that lucian when he commits to things will go for 100 percent. so i think he obviously has the talent and the level like it's insane in practice he just plays so good he's, he's beating me in practice uh regularly um so it's just whether he can kind of apply himself mentally and wants to do it and uh you know really enjoys the journey because it is a grind you know monastir antalya those types of places you're stuck there for a few weeks at a time eating the same food every day training with the same people playing on the same courts um not playing that many matches you know if you lose first round qualities you've got no matches other than doubles for the rest of the week um that's why i like the utr events that they're putting in the the you know you get five five matches you get some good prize money uh, i think it's 350 250 dollars minimum actually you know if you come last you get nothing but mostly like two maybe 250 dollars for playing i'm not sure um but yeah stuff like that i think is great because you know i think that has a real chance of i don't want to say but like competing with itf events for, for players at the moment because you can't get atp points from them but competing for with for the for the players playing them because if a player has to choose between playing five matches in a week, having all of the matches on video with a good like scoreboard and stuff like that, which you can then either analyze or post or whatever, like I watch Grisha's videos from Gladiators, he posts it. And then you've got um, you know, good prize money, winner gets three thousand, three and a half thousand dollars, you get two hundred and fifty dollars minimum. Why would I play a futures tournament where I play first round qualities, I lose, I get nothing? Especially the guys up to like a thousand in the world because the guys above a thousand you you're starting to go deeper in the tournament you might make a thousand thousand and lots of atp points which pushes you up the rankings and then you get that yeah. that uplift but guys that are, that are getting like two three points a year they're making like two thousand dollars a year off itfs why wouldn't they play 10 15 utr events if they can if their utr is high enough why not um so i think that if they just do more events and maybe lower the level that the utr required to play those events maybe and um you know, I think that would be something interesting, you know, to see how that develops. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be like, uh, I mean, the, the potential is there to make it like an alternative tour, right? Like say, hey, you know, if you don't have success on this tour, like people treat doubles in a way, but where many do, like it's okay, I didn't work out as a singles player, mm -hmm. but I'm a pretty good guy at, in, at the net, you know, I, I can hold my own in doubles, you know, you go to the doubles tour. And this could be like, okay, I, I'm not getting through to get enough points to really see my ranking increase, but then I can go play UTR events, maybe with some financial success, or at least enjoy playing tennis for more years, you know, so you're not like stuck or you have to give up or, you know, because I meet guys over here in, in Marbella, you know, I played, if I play an open, like that's 500 euro for the price, for the first prize, 250 for the, for the finalist, you know, yeah. um, and, you know, there's really strong players like, you know, ATP 900 joins and yeah. you top x2 top 100 guys and and they fighting like crazy for 500 euros because that's still decent compared to what you get maybe to go then you have to travel then also if you have to go to yeah. you know futures right yeah it's huge i so, mean those those tournaments in in your country that pay good are going to be 
that's that's why the guy that was I was supposed to go to Sharm El Sheikh next week, he played a what's called the UK Pro League in the UK, where you get a lot of money. The winner of that tournament next this week actually gets ten thousand pounds. So it's a wow. good compared to the Pro Tour prize pot for they have nine tournaments a year is half a million. So it's it's a lot. It's streamed on like BT Sports. It's quite a big thing kind of in the UK. So I think that stuff like events like that are really you know even if they don't necessarily get a lot of viewers are really good at giving back to the to the to the kind of players in a way and i i hope that that can remain the same because the, the the age old problem is guys at the lower level don't do anything so good that they have loads of followers and because they don't have loads of followers they don't draw loads of people and because they don't draw loads of people they don't make loads of money and therefore they don't get paid loads of money but, but the only way they get paid is through like in investment into the lower levels of the tour, which I don't think is how it should be. I think it should be that, you know, players get opportunities to be able to grow their social media because you can't expect a player to turn up with a camera to a match. Like that's not, you know, you're not going to buy a $400 camera, GoPro, whatever, to go play their matches. I think, you know, you maybe should provide that service, let them then post it, like Grisha is a good example. And then that will snowball into multiple people having kind of, being more known in the whole tennis space being a bit more exciting. You know, you see that in basketball in, in like high school and college basketball where everyone's got Instagram accounts with thousands of followers, people reposting, big accounts acknowledging the the lowest people on Instagram, reposting their stuff, saying, look at this player. And I think that that's what tennis is missing. You know, the ATP tour is only ATP tour. Tennis TV is only the top guys. It's You, ne- you know, you never... And, and the problem with that is you don't... It's kind of chicken and egg in a way. The the reason two guys rank 99th and 104, if they put a video on tennis TV, it's not going to get loads of views. But I don't think it's because of the level of tennis. It's because they're not well known. But the reason they're not well known is because they're not given the chance in the first place. You know, just like a chicken, yeah. chicken and egg. It's whether if they don't get the chance to promote themselves, they're not going to grow. And if they don't grow, then they're not going to get the chance to promote themselves. <laughs> you know? Yeah, this is 100% true. And also, I, I think sometimes, like... Tennis TV is one example. Like they have lots of matches. I don't know how many people. I would love to see streaming data on how many people stream ATP first rounds, whatever. Yeah. I think it's very player based, right? So you have a hero. It could be Felix Mischer, you know. It could be whoever. But it's like you have someone you follow because you like the style, you like the personality. It's like any sport. Yeah. Like you, you, you follow a team or a person because they have something that you enjoy, whatever that is, right? Uh, that entertains you. And if you showed more like Challenger Tour, even on Tennis TV, I don't know why really. But it's like you could have Challenger Tour matches. I have the best Challenger Tour matches or here are some characters on the Challenger Tour and they could package it so they could have like more cameras because that's cheap. The ATP Tour can afford having cameras on every match court. I think that's not yeah. so difficult. Yeah. And then having like some interviews or like this guy, we know he's a character, he's a pretty funny guy or this is crazy Danny, you know, like Danny Kuller who used to, used to threaten people on the court. I mean, you create more of an interesting... Uh, storyline around that because you have some people that are like quite interesting to follow it yeah. becomes kind of like a reality show but with sports you know mm-hmm. like they, they i mean i feel like you can do that also maybe even more successfully on the lower level than to have these guarded atp top pros for like the the netflix show because that's like sometimes they're so you know protected in a way they don't want to be like they have a lot of like things riding on its sponsors and so on yeah. while if you go to the lower levels uh, challenges whatever people can be more free and open and be more inter- interesting really right so true so, i mean the atp thing was I, I think was i thought it was terrible i thought it was the break point was so bad 
Um, there was maybe one good episode with Kira so and Wooden, which I quite enjoyed. But the personalities and the people that can actually say things are challenges and futures. You know, there's actually good stories. But the problem is, is it's all about money, isn't it? It's all about yeah. marketability, and that, that's a huge risk. You thinking someone getting you know a lot of money, the top of marketing in, in ATP. They're not going to go and say, okay, yeah, let's pay for a film crew or team to go and film this guy at futures level for two months and see what happens. Like that's going to cost maybe £15,000, dollars, euros, whatever it is. And then that's a big risk. If that doesn't do well, then it's like, okay, someone has a, below him has a reason. Oh, look at what he's done. It's not good. This is what I've done. Let me get promoted. Because at the end of the day, every business is a company. And at the end of the day, in a company, every person wants what's best for themselves financially and nobody wants to take a risk. So that's what we see when we work with a lot of brands is the people don't want to take risks. And it's about it's like a, a constant fight to prove to the guy working in the brand a reason to go to his boss and say, this is why it will work. And a lot of these guys aren't going to take risks without guarantees. And in a, in a, in a space where no one does cool stuff, because, mainly because no, 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 no one does cool stuff. But in tennis, nobody does like crazy videos mainly because nobody can do the crazy videos but because it's never been done nobody can do it kind of thing so it's it, it's like a cycle yeah. uh, in, in other sports people have made viral content and then on the back of that it's kind of snowballed slowly you see in football is a great example you see like psg doing like a day in dubai they invite five six influencers and they have mbappe neymar donnarumma and then all of the guys there, they do a video, like millions and millions of views, like two, three million views on each piece of content. And they've just got these guys for like half a day, probably as part of their contract with a brand to just do it. And they're happy to be there. And then you create something really cool. Whereas like in tennis, there's just, that just does not exist, you know? No, and you can even do, like they could do some action matches, say, okay, we, we, they pick some matches, uh, players need to agree with this because it's part of their, you know, agreement, whatever. And where you have different cameras or interviews in between yeah, sets or whatever. I mean, you try a little bit of a different format. Yeah. You, know? you just have to, everyone agree, like this tournament, we're going to try this format. Uh, but they don't ever try anything. So it's always the same. And sometimes when you go to ATP 250s and you go there the early days, and I like to go days where there's not that much people because you can get really close and, and it's more personal. Yeah. But it also hurts me as a tennis fan that I, the stadium's like very, very empty. You know, it's like, this is like, it's, it, you know, people are at work or they're, it's a summer, they don't, they're not there. It's, it's no famous names because I, I feel like it's not marketed. It's most like they have three top names, they market them and that's it. Yeah. You know, they don't do anything to try to sell the whole product beyond the tennis lovers already, you know? So that's something, I think that's great with what you're doing. I must say that, you know, that I think your your YouTube videos in the way they're cut and edited and your journey makes opens up for people that are not into tennis to actually watch tennis, you know, like get more into tennis. I think that can reach, you know, because I watch a lot of stuff on YouTube. I'm a big YouTube fan. Like that's probably what I watch the most, like Ryan Trahan. I watch a lot yeah, of shit. Ryan, I watch uh, Mr. Ryan. Beast. Uh, yeah. yeah, Ryan's great, you know, and I, I, it's like, I, I find so many good creators there and get so much value from my like YouTube premium subscription yeah. compared to my Netflix subscription. Like yeah. I feel like that there's so much good stuff there, you know, yeah. from, but sometimes I feel like tennis, they don't use all the tools in the box. You know, they don't have, they need like to hire some social media geniuses or whatever, you know, try to change something, you know, hundred percent agree. It's just about the creation of viral content more regularly with more players. There's more, there needs to be more yeah. diversity and more interesting stuff. I mean, even some, some like basic things like 
why do we not have mics on where the chairs at the tournaments? You see the constantly videos on YouTube, tennis drama. I think there's probably a ch there's one channel that literally his whole channel is posting the drama between players and it has thousands of views, thousands. But it's always like has to be like in a match. Like you can't get, you need mics on these things. You need to like expect it in a way. You need to embrace that because that's what gets tennis. I mean, it's going to be 0.01% of actual like on court, Alcaraz versus Novak level of tennis gets more than the ten percent of the tennis purist people. Nobody's going to mm. look at that and say, oh, "Is that good?" That seems pretty all right, you know. And that's why you mm. get that figure that all the Americans think that they can beat a pro in a match, like because they have no clue about the level. But then when you you know you get the drama, the Sitsipas Kyrgios match was one of the most viewed matches in the whole of Wimbledon when they had that drama, not because of the tennis. Not because of tennis at all, because of the drama. Because Stefanos tried to hit someone, Kyrgios retaliated, tried to get him banned, then Kyrgios did something crazy. That's what tennis needs to go to, but nobody can say it. Nobody can go yeah. out there and say to the ATP, look, we need to make tennis more crazy. We need to make tennis more um, you know, controversial. We need to make tennis more like this. Because it, it, in, in a way, it's not a great environment. For pl players want to be respected. They want to get their prize money checks and they want to go home. They don't want to have any drama. Most players. But in basketball, mm. it's all about the drama. How can I create drama is what they're thinking. How can I disrupt my opponent? How can I? Because I guess when you have the backing of your team, that's a bit different. In team sports, if you go out there and do something that like you get a red card, you're patted on the back and said, good job. You know, most, most of the time. Yeah. Whereas in tennis, if you do something like, like that, every, everyone other than the three people privately in the rocker room is going to be like, what the hell was that? And that's really tough yeah. to take. And so I think that's the problem. You don't get enough guys like Kyrgios who don't care. Kyrgios does not care. Well, in a way, you know what I mean? He just doesn't, doesn't let anyone say, tell him what he can and can't do. And that's why he's the one of the biggest growth opportunities for tennis that uh, has been in the last year, other than the big three. And once Novak eventually retires and Rafa retires... Murray retires. I don't think people are going to be getting out of their chairs to watch Seb Corder against Sebastian Baez, as good as they are, as upcoming as they are, and as crazy as they are. I just don't think there's enough of those. Like, you look back in the old days, well, not old days, but like a while ago, before I was born, like McEnroe and Borg and those guys, like those big rivalries. I mean, the closest you've got to that is Sina Alcaraz. But even that is like, it's nowhere near in comparison to like the big three, Fed, Novak, Rafa. Um, and that that's kind of tough to, to swallow, I think. Yeah, hopefully Senior Alcaraz will be like a, a big three matchup, but, yeah. but I agree. The tennis level there is insane, but Alcaraz's personality, I think, is very marketable. Mm -hmm. Sinner's maybe not so much, or it's pretty boring. Yeah. Uh, and I understand why it's good to keep your emotions, because I go crazy on a tennis court, and if I, you know, start letting my emotions take over, it goes to shit. You yeah. know, it's like tennis is a mental, mad sport. Yeah. Right? But I think, like you said, you need to allow some, and I you know, usually get some, some crap for this because people are so pur puritanical about tennis, is that you need to allow for some craziness to occur. Like, you need to allow for some outbursts. I mean, don't hit the ref in the eye with the tennis ball. I mean, or, you know, yeah, be don't, respectful, you don't need to do that. As long as it's not affecting anyone else, then, you know. And I think that it's, it's, it's just a fine line between entertainment and, like, abuse. I think that if you can, if yeah. you can create that fine line and... You know, if the drama boils over a little bit, then for the sport and for viewership might actually be not bad. Um, but if it's kind of kept very the same and traditional, I don't see a reason 
why someone of my age or younger that is going to grow up to be 20 or 30, other than the fact that they love tennis beyond anything, would watch tennis over basketball, over American football, over soccer or football, uh, over anything like that, if they have the choice. And that is the, the biggest problem because what, you know, I, I, this is kind of bad to say, but I get bored when watching matches between guys who are like 70 in the world because I don't know either of them. There's no personal attachment. The level of tennis, I know it's going to be good. Look at a challenger. I know the level's good, but it, there's two Spanish guys I've never heard of. I don't know anything about them. There's no drama or anything on the court. Why? Why am I? Why am I going to watch that? You know, it, there's no. Yeah, reason. And that's that's the biggest problem is finding a reason, finding that that hook. Yeah, exactly. And and you, and that's that's would be. I mean, if you want to sell a series to Netflix, or whatever, you need to have the the hook. What's the selling point? Like, what are we? What's the product? And I think sometimes we need to step back and revisit because I think the product right now is like. For people who play tennis, they're usually crazy about tennis. I meet so many crazy tennis lovers, and you know, I, I love the community. It's an amazing community. You have a fantastic community of followers yourself, and, and it's great. But beyond those followers, you need to get people watching tennis in an excited, animated way that are not players. I think that's important because there's so many people watching basketball. They don't go out and shoot hoops. Yeah. They're watching basketball like or, or playing American football or, or you know, soccer or whatever. But but tennis suffers that that like if you're a player you have all the kits and stuff yes that's a smaller group you need to get the players also that are not maybe playing tennis on the regular right yeah. you need to get those people to watch as well and for that you need to build a storyline who are these guys uh and and who what's exciting about this matchup like why should i care really package it. why should i care yeah. about the tennis and then give a reason and and do do it regularly enough for people to to turn it on because that's the biggest thing. Yeah. And that will then, that's like a massive domino effect. Because, I mean, to be honest, when you look, I'd l we'd like to think it's a domino effect that more tennis viewers means more entertainment, more money or more stuff. But whether that's true, we, we're not really sure because it's already a, a, a viewed a lot. And the, the, the money is, well, it's just a shambles really. But I think it will, it will generate more buzz and it'll be you know good for us, I guess, as tennis YouTubers because more people will watch the sport for our business, but also for, for the sport overall and, and for players who are playing even at the lower level events to have some people actually watching and appreciating their level of tennis that they've put hard work into. Guys at Challenger events working, they're maybe 25, they've put a solid probably 20, 18 years of their life, 18 to 23 years of their life into tennis, uh, paid lots of money, hustled for sponsors, unless obviously their parents are rich, but maybe talking about the average person, then you've, you know, then nobody's watching your matches. That That's very tough. Very tough. But yeah. 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 They should offer, I mean, for sure, they should offer streams for every, like, I, I think I, any future match should have a stream or something. Yeah. I mean, like that, technically that shouldn't be that costly. Like from what you, you can stream. I mean, I can put on a, a camera and stream in the back of, of any, right? It's not that hard. Yeah. Right? The technology infrastructure should be there. Yeah. It's just get, hiring the people to, to do it, I think is the problem. And, yeah. and actually just wanting to, cause like, why would a tournament director or an ITF event do that? There's the, you know, there's, there's gotta be incentive. And at the end of the day, it's always money, isn't it? It's, it's always gotta be, why should I do that? Okay, I get money from people staying in the hotel. I get money from the entry fee. I get money for playing, rinse and repeat every week. Why, why should I now try and do something different to take a risk and spend some money and do that? when it works fine now and I make an all right living as the tournament, that's how I was tournament director. I make an all right living. I'm happy with it. You know, 
because you need everyone to kind of change a little bit. It's not just the organizational, unless the ITF puts in legislation for like a, a, a like a legally thing that you have to do it, uh, which is the only way to change. But I don't know whether the ITF actually cares that much about the players, to be honest. When you've been traveling around to the ITF tournaments, is there like a wide variety of like, you know, the conditions when you go there? Courts, hotel, transport, is, are some like nightmare? And are some just like, wow, this is the best. Like this, so far, this is the best tournament I've been to. Like what are your experiences there? Is it, is it very varying or quite steady level? I mean, first of all, I, I kind of like to say most of these tournaments are in terms of like, um, how, how, what's the best way to describe this? From like, a, like the ITF, I guess ITF putting on the event from an ITF like standpoint, they're pretty much always the same. There's the minimal effort, minimal of everything. Usually it's down to the club running the event to help promote, to help create a good atmosphere, to create a good environment. And most of the time, the club doesn't care. So the problem is, is uh, I'd say uh, most of the events that I've been to, you know, Spain, Portugal, you're going to get a club, you're going to get maybe some people in the evening coming out to watch because there's a restaurant there, they can go and eat some food, maybe watch some tennis. Um, but in the day, it's completely dead. The only event that I've ever been to actually where I felt like a player was recently in Metzingen in Germany, a 15K tournament. And, you know, you go there, you get like a badge, like a accreditation. They have like a player's area where they have some free food and you some food where you pay for. They have seating and it's actually controlled. Like no one can just walk in there. You've got like a warm up area with some foam rollers. They provide equipment. you got like um, they charge people entry to come and watch the event and people pay and they come and you have maybe for my first round qualities second round qualities match i had 80 to 100 people there watching and i felt like a proper player like there's actually people there whether or not they know who i am or whatever it's just nice to have that environment they have a center court they have a scoreboard they have sponsors and sponsors is the key thing they had boss as a sponsor they had a couple companies probably locally and um yeah i guess to help finance it but yeah, it was a really nice event and I really actually enjoyed being part of it. I felt like a proper player. Uh, and then you go to like Monastir, Tunisia and it just feels like a kind of a, a terrible holiday kind of thing where you kind of have to play tennis and, uh, you know, you're out in boiling heat. You It's like a family resort where you're staying. It's, it's not bad, but it's not like nice. You know, it, it's, it's bearable maybe, but... Um, you know, it's very repetitive after a while. There's not much to do there. You have a beach, you have a gym, which is not great. And then, you know, you just got to kind of, if you're there for multiple weeks, just deal with it. You know, outside our our room, you've got like a pool and they're, they're screaming on the speakers playing music and, and this, they're shouting because you know, it's like crazy and they're shouting like, um, you know, stuff and random, like I was in my room trying to work, like it's just aircon's broken, uh, sewage coming in, like the toilet system's broken. Um, you know, you maybe got a cockroach in your room that you got to deal with, uh, animal, like, it's just everything in this like kind of crazy craziness. And obviously that the more, like the, if the tournament hotel is nice, usually it's just more expensive. And so it's like, Okay, well, that's just expected. You know, there's a tournament in Q8 that I was looking at playing at the Rafa Nadal Academy out in Q8, um, which looks pretty nice. But the, the tournament hotel is the Grand Hyatt Regency. And the actual, I think, price per night is, I think it's like 200 euros for a double room, which 100 without lunch and dinner. So that's quite a lot when you're going there for that's multiple awesome. weeks. Like, 
uh, for, for tennis players at least, you know, where, you know, uh, the tournament I'm playing in Portugal is probably the best pricing for value. You know, you get a, I think it's like a bungalow with like two bedrooms for like 40 euros or something. So that's like pretty good value. You can actually afford to kind of play those events. You might even make a profit that week, you know. And um, yeah, I think uh, maybe tournaments could do a better job. Like, well, ITF could do a way better job at making the tournaments just a little bit better, uh, hospitality wise, especially. Like, maybe just having some Airbnbs that they recommend or host families. They do that well in America, but. Uh, not in any any other countries but to be honest i don't know in in tunisia i probably wouldn't want to go outside the the site to be honest i wouldn't you know i've heard some some crazy things there so yeah maybe in in more like european countries work better yeah being a tennis player is a crazy lifestyle there's a lot of stories there and that's good like that you have a youtube channel and and uh, i mean it's always nice to hear the background because i don't think people realize they just see the atp 250 or atp i mean mostly grand slam and it looks very glamorous, and it is pretty glamorous if you're yeah. a player. But then this stuff is more interesting from a story point of view. Like this is something people can relate to. They can almost laugh about it. Like if you're staying in a shit room and then you have to wake up, uh, and you have had guys, you know, talk to guys that are ex pros, or even had them on the podcast where people tell crazy stories. You know, like Simon's sleeping in a bus shelter, or whatever. <laughs> so this stuff is like, what is this? Is this professional sports? Yeah. <laughs> it's, Pretty humorous, but uh, yeah, there's there's an upside to it once once you start uh, climbing the rankings and things yeah, go well, hopefully, right? That's, hopefully, that's the there's thing. an upside. Not for everyone. For most people, it's actually just a lot of pain and uh, empty pockets. But you know, everyone's just got a dream. So yeah, yeah. And you got your you got your dream. You're motoring on your way to yours. I, I like it. Otherwise, you'll be, you'll be the ATP media director. You know, the way we talk God. today. Maybe you know. <laughs> I think I'd just shoot myself if I had to deal with a team of people like that. So I think I'd maybe just create some create some sort of new new thing and try and figure it out. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what Novak does with the PTPA or whatever. I don't know what they're doing really, but uh, but it's at least you know they're trying, I guess, to make it a bit more pushy. The player council stuff, like I don't know, yeah, that what's happening behind the scenes. I think that that should be something kind of exciting. But it's it's always again, it's that that kind of question of are they willing to take a pay cut to help the lower level guys, kind of thing, because they it, you know everyone's everyone's all for it when it's like everyone gets paid more but at the end of the day there's the biggest reason for people to get paid more is at the highest level because they actually financially it makes sense for them to get more whereas the ITFs it's just fair to pay them more and it's like almost inhumane to pay them so little so it's like kind of from from a business perspective it makes sense to pay the top players more and the ITF doesn't really matter and like the challenges not as much um but it's like whether those guys at the ptpa are really like i think novak has kind of said this like the, the guys like 500 onwards just futures and challenges guys um there need to be more infrastructure there but it's whether they 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 just pay the guys now at the top the same and utilize that money downwards or whether it will be like the, you know a bit more of a, a top heavy spread it kind of it kind of depends what the way that they want to go down but hopefully that they can just help the lower level players to to go up and and then just create more interesting stuff to get get the top players to play pay more yeah and maybe we're going to see more people doing your stuff like trying to do like a you know going to atp point journey i, I think there are already a few few out there you know but maybe there are people will be like i have to try this and 
I think also there's there's a thing with with YouTube. You mentioned it, I think, earlier in the conversation that people think it's very easy. You just place your camera and then you have a video, and like they're like, oh, but you just take the racket and then you film. And I'm like, do you know how much work goes into actually doing the video? It is quite of a pain in the butt, you know. <laughs> and I'm not even good at it. It's, it's always that kind of thing in, in my head. Like, I always think maybe some people will copy me, and then in like a kind of weird way i think to myself i don't think that they ha can will push through the effort because i know how much sacrifice it's been for me and i've had help from my dad thankfully alongside his other job which has been you know really helpful and obviously my brother who's helped a little bit um you know i've been in a fortunate enough position to be able to get some help from other people at some points and throughout the journey as well so and obviously myself i'm just willing to to work really hard and you know i'm happy to say that i don't have a massive friend groups outside of of what i'm doing especially when i'm traveling it's quite lonely to be honest because you know you know the guys at the tournaments but when you're constantly moving you know i don't really know that many guys and i'm not going to be going out and partying and making new friends and i'm going to be working in my hotel room until 10 o'clock and then go to bed it's so boring but i know kind of sacrificing the time now will will allow it to to grow and to show more people and hopefully to, I guess, a little bit selfishly to, to, to help me, you know, have some sort of career path in my life. I think it's almost weird, like for a lot of the YouTube guys kind of saying like, oh, you're only doing it for the money and, you know, you're only doing it. And I, I, I kind of, my initial response is like, well, well, why, you know, yeah, that's one part of it. I have to somehow make some money from something, you know. I'm not just going to do this out of the goodness of my heart. As much as I love YouTube, as much as I love showing you guys, um, you know, it has to be a viable career path. And, I have, you know, everyone aspires to make as much money as possible, you know. It's, it's not like, okay, I've made enough to cover my tennis expenses. I'm going to stop now. You know, I want to, I want to grow into something, maybe build, um, you know, a bigger business out of it. Help be able to give back to some of the tennis community. Um, you know, I, I have a dream. I'd love to ha have my own tennis academy at some point, like something like that, like something really cool. And that, that requires capital and that requires, you know, a good business. And I think that that's something that a lot of people don't really see it as is a business until it's big enough where they can't ignore it. And I think that every YouTuber that you look at, influencer, starts off the same, builds their stuff and eventually goes into, you know, big business. You look at KSI, you look at Logan Paul, you look at Emma Chamberlain, you look at all of these big YouTubers. They now own multi, multi-million dollar, if not billion dollar brands. And I think that, you know, that's kind of the goal of everyone is to is to grow and build that way. So, you know, that's that's one of the goals as well as as well as obviously the tennis. But for me, the tennis right now, I feel more passionate about. I just know that the other thing is going to just keep turning away and keep growing, keep building and, you know, I'm obviously quite young, so I haven't had that many. Well, I have never worked a job other than this. So my dad puts me in reality sometimes and says, you know, it's not normal kind of what you're doing uh, in, in in a usual sense. So, you know, t helping to, to kind of control some of the things like with having people help me and stuff, just, you know, I think it's quite important as well. One thing I, I didn't ask you actually, which is kind of interesting, is like how do you deal with your with comments? Like, I mean, you have so much love, but you also probably have some hate. I haven't checked down in the in the like deep depths of, of hell of the YouTube comments on your channel, but but I mean, mostly love, but then some shit as well. Like, do you do you even bother? It's like post and ghost, or how how connected are you in terms of your community? I mean, I think our engagement's like pretty good in terms of like good comments. Like the when I got my first point, there was a lot of like positive stuff. I didn't actually read one negative like comment, you know, which 
which is good. And I mean, there's always going to be, they call themselves realists. Like, it's just it's such a crap word. Like, you know, you lose a first first <laughs> round qualies match. Oh, I'm just being realistic. Just shut up. Like, why, why, why are you even spending the time to go down and write like a negative comment saying you're never going to do anything? And as much as people love to say that it doesn't affect them, it does. It does. If you if you get comments that say da da da, especially when you're posting your game and you're trying to make it like sound better than it is, and you're only putting the good points, and you know you get that, and it's like really demotivating in a way. So most of the time now, I just kind of only sort by like certain categories. So I sort by my channel members. I sort by a certain amount of subscribers. I sort by questions because they're not usually bad. So it just kind of cuts out the the stuff that I don't really need to reply to anyway. Um, you know, obviously appreciate everyone that, you know, leaves a comment as long as it's reasonably constructive. I know I've, constructive comments are fine. Like, I don't mind them. It's just the people that are straight up ignorant or hate or stuff like that. And at the end of the day, I actually find it quite funny, you know, because a lot of these players, like, you know, I had this video idea, which is just such a salty video idea. But I think it just, it in, in, in like, I just think it would do quite well. It's like you, you get like a comment that's from someone like that actually has some sort of account, like can't just be some bot. And then you, um, you know, you, you basically say to them, like if they've critiqued your tennis, like, you know, those armchair tennis coaches or, or those armchair yeah. tennis people. And I'd love to just call them out and say, look, I will play you on camera, no cuts, one set of tennis. Let's see what happens. And obviously, you know, it's just petty and, you know, people would always tear at it. But I'd love to do that. That would be so funny because, you know, you go on the court and you just, you just embarrass them. And because what I said to my dad and what my dad says to me, we kind of have this agreement is no person that either understands how hard you work, understands the level of tennis or understands the dedication will ever leave a negative comment on a video. You're not going to see any tennis player higher ranked than you leaving a negative comment unless they're like a really salty person about the business. And I have had a few people that like other tennis players actually that are really salty about what I do because they feel like, oh, yeah? you know, oh, I'm a better tennis player or I do, you know, there's what, there's one guy that does YouTube videos. I'm not going to name names, but he's just really salty that I do such a good job of what I do and I get views and he doesn't or whatever. So, um, it's not someone a lot of people would know. So it's not like any of the big guys, but, I just... Is it Tennis Nerd 2 channel? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> uh, a lot, a lot... I have a second name. I just go and post <laughs> shit on people's channels. Yeah, but it's, it's just I find, I find those comments funny. And at the end of the day, you just have to ignore it and plow on with what you're doing because, you know, a lot of people in a lot of areas of life, especially on YouTube, do something new. It gets negative press to begin with. People don't like it. They do it for a while. People actually think, oh, this is all right. And after two years of doing it, they're like, wow, I actually really enjoy this. I'm a fan of this. You know, and that's that kind of mm. age-old saying of haters turning into fans in a way because it's like to leave a comment on yeah. my videos you must have watched all of them so you clearly can't hate me that much like if i hate someone i'm not going to watch their videos if i find someone dead boring or i don't think they're going to amount to anything i'm clicking off i don't care but clearly you're watching the full video you're talking about this specific point why i'm not going to do it yeah well you clearly you clearly have some sort of attachment there and you're going to keep watching so as long as they keep providing me with the views i don't, I don't care <laughs> You know, that's where yeah, you got no and engagement is good. Like, so if you have comments, I mean, also you should comments are shit comments and you should filter them out. I don't think it's good to, to see too much, but, but it's also like, it, it's good for the YouTube algorithm. Like there's some channels, like, I, I mean, I used to be a, a chess player, right? So Gotham chess, for example, he used yeah. to pin the most hateful comments. So the pin of that's shame, true. he used to always pin that. So people would defend him 
and it would create huge engagement. So I think it's a pretty smart yeah. way to kind of trick the algorithm a little bit. Yeah, you know? I, I love yeah. those guys in chess YouTube as well. It's like there's so many avenues within YouTube. And I think it's so good that um, it's such like a, a broad place. And you can take little bits from everyone's kind of content in a way and just kind of keep it for yourself and use that in your own content and stuff. So, yeah, I think that that's, um, you know, that, that pain of shame is quite good. Do you get any um, like fans coming up to you and like starstruck and like, hey, I want an autograph? That uh, that that happens from time I mean, to time, right? It happens more than I kind of say. I think I I think it's a lot of like, I think just because of my age and the fact that within the tennis, it's kind of a weird dynamic. Like within the tennis community, I'm quite well known from from what like a lot of the people, um, and as a player, I guess. And so like here at Moratoglu, it's like I can't. This sounds bad, but I really don't love walking into a room with like 50 kids because I know there's going to be like more. Every, first of all, everyone's going to look at me and know who I am and they're going to start talking to each other. And then there's going to be people like, so today, for example, just training like oh, maybe 10, 15 pictures with people and say conversations and stuff. And, you know, I, I enjoy it. I appreciate everyone that kind of comes up, but it's just leads to some awkward like, how do I manage this conversation when there's people walking towards me? I know they're going to kind of talk to me and stuff, but I've got a training session or I don't know, I'm not in the mood to talk to some, you know, there's just like this whole new world that I haven't experienced massively yet that um, is obviously a positive thing, to, uh, positive problems to have, but sometimes it can just be a little bit kind of like awkward when, when the worst is when you, you know someone wants to take a picture with you and you can see them like two or three times plucking up the courage to come over and then they back out and they go away and then, you can't really just look at them and like call them out and say, Hey, do you want a picture? Cause then it's just embarrassing for them. So you kind of just have to pretend like you don't notice them and then like go walk in their direction and be like, Oh, you know, da, da, da. So that happens a lot with the younger guys, <laughs> which I find quite funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, once one person's kind of taking a picture then everyone's like, Oh, okay. Now it's okay. Cause it's not embarrassing anymore kind of thing. Um, but yeah, a lot of the parents as well kind of, kind of with the pictures, helping their kids. That's happened two, three times today. It shows the power of YouTube as well, because you're probably more famous than many ATP 100 pros, right? That don't get anything like that. Or maybe it gets like one super fan who comes up. I know you, yeah, you have a great forehand, you know? Uh, you know, I, I get that sometimes, like, but I usually get people who stare at you like, oh, I have a record question, <laughs> uh, you know, but. <laughs> Can you give me some, some free advice? I'm not going to pay you, but I'd love yeah. an in-depth review of everything. That's what Karu was saying. Like, people just coming up to him and asking for advice as if like you're not like, you wouldn't go up to some random tennis coach and say can you just give me loads of tips on my game for free you'd pay them for to, to, to do it so it's like i guess with yourself and crew and like coach more like actual stuff which you charge money usually for it's like you know asking for the tips and tricks is okay to a certain extent but as soon as it goes into a longer conversation you're like you know okay like this is a you know i know you're a fan and i know that you know i want to help but at some point, it's like I've got to go, or you know, you you just pay me, to, and I'll tell you everything. You know, that that that. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a weird uh, thing because people obviously don't want to pay. Generally, I mean, some are really nice and and obviously very supportive, but it's that thing to get the 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 weirdest people are usually the ones that you get, I guess you're really bothered. Like you're like, oh shit, I have to find a way to get out of this situation. <laughs> yeah, but at the end of the day, like <laughs> if you look at it from the outside, you could probably just say like bl bluntly because you don't have any personal attachment to that person but it's you just feel like this obligation to to kind of uh, help them and and you know give them advice and especially like with instagram dms like i just try and 
help like message the people that you know I can but so many people are asking like these specific questions and you know it leads into a conversation then and I just don't you know it's just I just don't have the time to be able to do that and I think it'd be much better to just like organize all of those people into a group of people that make sense under some sort of membership or some, or some sort of thing and then you can actually spend the time to to really help these people rather than doing it half-assed and so I kind of if I if I get someone that leaves it like a dm or a comment I kind of if I'm replying to them I'm replying to them I'm, I'm willing to commit to doing a few back and forths that's the way I think about it mm. so that isn't as many that many people you know it's maybe you know I, I have some people leaving voice notes and I listen I sometimes listen to them it's like some kid and I'm like okay that's quite nice I'll send a voice note back or I'll meshes them back and then it's a few conversations i think that's important to have that um you know communication because if i message so like a big youtuber i'd really appreciate them coming back to me you know um but mm. just as long as it's not affecting actually like my time and and going pushing myself out and saying okay well i spent an hour now just replying to people that hasn't helped me in any way but you know now they've all written comments back and then you feel bad for not replying to them that's the worst um so yeah yeah, there are some pros that manage this. Like I've seen Roger in action uh, live a few times and he just manages people so well. You know, he's just like a, a master yeah. at that. Like it's as good as his uh, volleys almost, you know, it's it's he's just like navigating and not being rude, but you knowing when to kind of, you know, now it's time to move on and stuff like it's very impressive. Uh, but then you like if you're around these tournaments, they're going to be fans. So you you in your case, you're going to be growing your channel. You're going to have to get used to people maybe coming up interrupting a dinner i was out with with Sitsipa's family like in stuttgart and you know people came up and just like while steph was putting pasta in his face you know and just like hey can we take a picture he's like can can i finish my bite just and then we we do it after dinner you know and they waited and they were really polite so it's nice you know but but it's just like one of those that you probably will have to <laughs> learn how to match but what you already have about but it's, it's one i i really i'm impressed by people who can do that on a high level and do it really elegantly because it's not that yeah. easy. Because if you feel a little bit, like a little bit, like uh, you know, people are on you all the yeah. time. Never break a racket, by the way. Um, no. I've I've done it, so don't don't feel any shame. During a match, yeah, even not on during level. a match or a session. Um, sometimes, what what you once or twice, like the racket itself is like chipped just from like scraping it on the floor or running. And then at the end, like I had two matches, like where I was like really low, like end of last year, I lost like ten matches in a row. I was completely done. I was like the last day there. This racket was like it was chipped, it was broken anyway. So I just go out, absolutely just destroy this racket. Like you couldn't even hold the frame anymore. The grips like separated. I just leave it in the bin there. Take a picture. This is the, the you know. So like once, once I really like got angry, but wasn't like a, you know fresh bat because like you know I only get a certain amount and. You know, I just, I don't see the need to, to let it out like that. I, I, I'm more of a person to just shout at myself. I just create noise when I'm angry. I don't really break, I don't break stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a too, like, respectful and kind of calm at heart to, to actually, like, um, you go crazy with, with a racket. But sometimes everyone gets heated. So, uh, you know, in the future, I'm going to try and keep it controlled if there's some big moments. But, uh, yeah, just stick to, stick to maybe just, uh, yeah, go, telling me to be quiet. I think it's an important release, though. I, I realize that sometimes if you bottle up too much and you try to be Bjorn Borg or, or Federer, yeah. uh, I, I sometimes struggle. I need to scream or I, I don't break. I broke racket one practice, which was like 45 degrees, and I, I lost my head 10 years ago. But then I haven't broken anything. But 
Sometimes I, I feel like I want to go to the bag and break every single racket I have in the bag, which is usually eight different rackets, you know? So uh, it would be <laughs> in all new models. brands asking for new ones. Like, but <laughs> exactly. I think it, it's, it's, no. it's, it's difficult because unless you have really good control of your emotions, if you don't let it out, you're going to kill yourself from within. And then it becomes you, you, everything suffers and, you know, you end up just being really, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. Like you just have to, you have sometimes you just have to let it out. And the only way that you can play effective tennis, in my mind, without if you're not if you're not someone that can control it really well, is by not caring about the result. That's the only way that I've sometimes found. Like if I'm in a really bad mood, like a really terrible session, sometimes just saying to myself, like, who cares? It's a practice. Doesn't matter if I lose six love, six love. Doesn't matter. Hit a trick shot. Doesn't matter. Hit an underarm serve. Doesn't matter. And then sometimes that then just, I start playing really good uh, or, or I just start like, or, or I just keep playing badly, but I, it's not affecting me anymore because I've just made that conscious effort. Don't let it affect you because the worst is when you're yeah. like really trying to change yourself. But if you're playing bad and you're not actually changing what you're doing on the court, you're just changing what you're thinking. It's not actually going to have an output on your level of tennis, which is what is causing the mental problem. So that's then you got to just either let it out and reset or you've got to just find a way to to change actually like tactically really differently like what you're doing like only slice really try and give yourself time to distract from i've done that in a match i played a match a while ago i was losing six love three one and i said to myself forehand and backhand you're only going to slice and it got in my opponent's head so much i won the match i didn't hit a single top spin shot the whole match slicing everything this was when i was like 15 years old and my opponent lost it so big, big time because he was like, you know, he was he's at the level where they don't really have that much power to hit through. So they're just like yeah. getting so annoyed. And I was beginning to like really enjoy slicing and then it just distracts you so much. So finding some things like that can really help, um, especially kind of uh, when you're not playing like kind of professional tennis, when the other guy on the other side of the net can actually be affected massively by kind of what you're doing. You know, moon balls is a great example in junior tennis. As annoying as it is and as detrimental to your development as it is if you do it regularly in in a match if you do one game of moon balls the other guy's like crying breaking his racket like i've seen that all before like oh dad he's only hitting moon balls it's not fair like he's not a proper player and then you feeling like oh what a baby on the other side i'm winning this match now and then you start regaining your, your momentum so yeah that's kind of what i think about that yeah that's a very good point very good attitude i think to change things change a shirt change a cap change the take like the way you play a little bit just change something so so you have a new mindset yeah. you know with line calling like many matches you you call your own lines i guess right yeah on, on many ITF matches you play qualifying still. and british events yeah other than main play. yeah and, and do you do you get it like is there a lot of like discussions about uh, line calls or is it pretty pretty like fair i mean you have a camera <laughs> there so it's a big win i was gonna you. say yeah i mean i've got a camera um but yeah, usually it's not too bad. I mean, there are always going to be some dodgy calls, but most of the, I'd say 70% of the time, it's just a close call. Like in the moment you just call it and it's like, okay, maybe it was in, maybe it was out. But if it's this close, nobody knows. Actually, like the pros make mistakes, even like people whose job it is to stand there and watch the line make mistakes. So, you know, how are yeah, you supposed to know? So, you know, that's, that's the one thing. And then maybe um the i i find it harder line call wise to play against with an umpire than without because the umpires make worse calls than the other guy on the other side of the net 
because you can't like I've had matches match point against two guys ranked 300 in doubles 10 9 7 to them in the match tiebreak I'm returning the guys hit a serve this far out at least half a meter not even close the guy at the net is like kind of re-preparing for the second serve you know my partner's like and I just bunt it back umpire said nothing so then I'm like, oh my god! I look at the umpire as the ball's in the air, and he hasn't—he's like watching to see where it goes. And I'm like, oh my god, it's actually a live point. And then we lose the point, and we lose the match. And I was fuming, and it's like, you know, it's just you know, especially at these lower levels as well. You have to, you have to remember almost that there is actually like corruption at that level as well. That's that's something as well. Corruption, people paying match fixing. That happens, you know. As much as we don't like to admit it, it happens. Some players are match fixing. You. Ha- you know, people are always getting banned. That's only when you find out that it was happening. But match fixing is happening. Umpires, I've heard of umpires changing the scores so that people can cash in bets and then undoing it. Um, or if you have to get to a certain score in the game, go 40-15 up, and then suddenly um, it goes, you know, the other person wins the game, so they just quickly add in five points. And so it's just crazy. I've, like, I've, I don't know whether this is related, but on, on uh, ITF live scores, I've seen one guy wins the set, I look 10 minutes later, it's the, still the first set. So it's like, well, how has how is, how is that happened? Um, so yeah, stuff like that is always kind of prevalent as well with the umpires. So you never know whether they're, I don't know, secretly getting paid to make dodgy calls or, or make sure that the first serve doesn't go in. You know, you never know. Um, I don't think it happens regularly, but it definitely happens. And, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. But at the lowest level, you know, everyone's trying to get some sort of money because they're not getting paid at all. Like umpires, the umpiring, you get it paid literally nothing, uh, in the UK at least. Yeah, I think the money problem shows up there as well because there was a big news story now about like a match fixing ring, yeah. right? Someone arranging a match yeah. fixing ring. Having worked, I worked in like online gambling for like eight years, right? So uh, for a big, big company and you know everything about this topic from that and it's like, it's it's i'm not really a gambler myself i'm not really into the, to it and i really think it hurts tennis in yeah. a way so in 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 one part of me i would say like it's better to re- just remove the possibility but then on the other hand you lose a lot of sponsors because i mean i, I don't like when players get hate and stuff like yeah. that but um obviously since the money is so bad everybody's is, uh, oops everybody's so keen on finding other ways of making money so if the money was better maybe you you at least cut out some of it you know because pay, people are actually getting paid now but but then it's like, okay, I have no money, so what, what can I do? You yeah, know? Just, I mean, if there's uh, some players, to... you know, if, if you think of it, like, I guess you, you, if it's big enough, you'll get a fine for doing it. But if you don't get caught for some of these guys, it's like, you know, I'm not going to make any money in my tennis career. If I can make maybe 10, 50,000 or something, maybe in three or four, th- over three years, then that's like a job kind of thing. And then, they, then you just retire from tennis because you're never going to make it kind of anyway. And then, you, you know, so it's yeah. just that. You know, it just needs to be kind of paid more money, and uh, yeah, it's it's you know some some players have dodgy results. I see it all the time, like, and it's just it makes you question whether that's real or whether that's you know, especially the ITF level, because there are some very dodgy score lines and some people that have ATP points where the guys like four hundred in the world playing an unranked guy and loses six to one, six love, maybe injury, and then people, you know, it's just there's always these things, and I I, I guess. Um, you know, when there is an investigation into it and it's, you know, maybe if you haven't done anything wrong, you've just had a bad result or you were injured or, you know, sometimes that can be be difficult. Like Dan Evans had a case where some of his, like people in his, within a mile of his house 
put on like a load of money on his games, so probably his friends, and he ended up losing the match because he had like some injury or something. And then there was a massive investigation. They accused him of match fixing, and then he spent like thousands in lawyers to be able to basically say that prove that it wasn't the case, basically. But I guess some people don't have the luxury of being able to to do that because the whole reason they've done it is because they don't have a lot of money in the first place. But yeah, it's something that needs to just try and be policed a little better better in 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 the sport because nobody wants that. Nobody wants match fixing to be a thing, you know, whether it's right, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I think all sports struggle with some part of cheating like chess. We have this uh, thing with, with people using like if they're playing online chess tournaments, you can use like a computer on the side or like you have another yeah. person involved yeah. or there's ways you can get around it. And I think that's in, in, in most other sports you can have like, you know, and also in tennis, you know, physical enhancement. Sure. drugs you know stuff that are illegal you know I, i'm there's a lot of discussion about that we had halep going through some some painful stuff i don't know what's true or not but uh it's it's a, it's a messy thing professional sports you know it's just something you have to navigate and and uh, you know hope that the the leading bureaucracies are, are good at you know whether it's itu in tennis or or whatnot yeah 100 percent right? agree all right man well i i have taken a lot of your time this has been uh, great channel is amazing uh your work ethic is equally amazing you're an you know really an uh, inspiration for young people out there i think and, and people in general but especially with your, your young age you know and, and uh for tennis as well so you're just gonna keep on moving you have good influences at home i hear that so just keep on pushing getting more points getting more followers and uh yeah keep uh, keep doing thanks Jonas. yeah it's been a pleasure to come on have a chat with you and i'm sure at some point we'll We'll be able to meet up. I mean, there were a few times where we, we were nearly nearly at the same like event or something through some brand. But um, yeah, I'm sure at some point we'll um, yeah we'll meet up. You can uh, give me some tips on my racket specs, even though I'm probably not going to change anything <laughs> because I won't change anything for ages. But um, yeah, we can uh, you know create some content or something. But yeah, it was great to have a chat to you. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to to seeing what comes of this and also just you know keeping up to date with uh, with the videos on the channel keep seeing you playing as well that was exciting watching you play some tournaments always enjoying not exciting well, it's I very unexciting watching those kind of vlogs because I, I just enjoy you know, watching other guys at tournaments so looking forward to like you said maybe playing some more of those events so I wish you the best of luck in those and then uh, yeah looking forward to, to maybe meeting up with you in person at some point we should we should yeah I, I'm, I'm trying to highlight the mental pain of playing tennis <laughs> It's uh, it's what I do. <laughs> it's it's rough, but I think people can relate. Everyone like it's, that's the good thing exactly. with, with with all levels of tennis. You, everybody knows how how it is to hit a double fault on a set point. You know, it, it's, <laughs> oh, it's so relatable. <laughs> Even match point, like uh, exactly. You know, that happened to me so many times. <laughs>